Hello. This is a part two of a series on the Vikings within a broader series on the history of Western piracy. While it is advised to listen to the first episode to get a better understanding of who these Viking raiders we'll be talking about are, it is not necessary to enjoy this podcast. Last one specifically looked at the society of Scandinavia. This one will look at what that society did to the rest of Europe. Enjoy. Hello, I am Mark Campbell, and this is Adrift, a history podcast. Last episode, we looked at who the Vikings were, what they looked like, what they believed, and how they fought. On today's episode, we'll look at what the Vikings did, how they changed Europe forever, and why we can't forget them. So let's see where the history takes us. Picking back up where we left off on our history of the Vikings, and our grander narrative about the history of Western piracy, we're once again going to look at the victims, not the perpetrators, to start off with. And while I don't want to make a, too much of a habit of doing this, it's important to examine how much of their success was simply caused by the environment that they found themselves in. How much of the ability to conquer all of Europe was simply that they attacked at the precise time when Europe was starting to become its most fractured. When you're looking at the early 800s, late 700s, AD, Europe really doesn't seem in that bad of a shape. England had just gone through what was called the Northumbrian Renaissance. There was advancements happening in theology, political sciences, scientific sciences. Really, the actual wealth of the individual English person, the Anglo-Saxon at that time, was on the rise. And then on continental Europe, Charlemagne had just made his empire, had forged it in blood. And he had then taken his army and smashed all the enemies on the exterior of the empire, making it safe. He then revolutionized the way that commerce happened. He created the Emporium system. Basically to where there would be one town that really all merchants went to trade. The town would usually have a mint in it to facilitate this trading. At this time, one of these Emporiums, Doristad, is said to have around 2,000 people. And with these 2,000 people, it was one of the largest cities in all of North Europe. This specific town being in the Netherlands, close to Utrecht. So just as their English counterparts were going through a renaissance, life for the average continental European was not too bad. If aliens were, you know, taking bets on who would win on this great clash between the two civilizations, and I was an odds maker, I would have maybe gave them 5 to 1, 7 to 1, 10 to 1 odds. Because remember, these Vikings were not the unified force that the Europeans were. They didn't have the unified state of England or France. They were much closer to the Germanic tribes to the south of them. Or even the Germanic tribes because they had been forced into battle, into more confederations, specifically because Charlemagne and the Franks. You could argue that they may be even more unified than the Scandinavians at that time. But it was not a sure deal, no matter what odds you give it. But those are the odds for, you know, early 800s. It was in 800 that Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, no one really knew what that meant, but it was a, still a big deal. There was no real rivals to Charlemagne's power. On a quick little side note, I've always found it fascinating. When Charlemagne is at the height of his power, he wants the Pope to proclaim him the Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor. 
even 300 years after the fall of Rome, the most powerful man, well, not maybe not on the planet at this time, but certainly in Europe at this time, is still reaching for the past. Still wants to validate his rule through a country that had fallen as far as, well, if you put a same time scale in our modern times, America would still be British. And 1700 is kind of equal distance between the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire and modern day. So it was a while ago. And the fall of Rome was a while ago for them too. But for the most part, Europe was stable. It was doing okay. Nothing horrific seemed to be on the horizon. That's why it's almost so tragically beautiful that Charlemagne, this great heroic figure, his last army that he ever led was against the Vikings. A later Swiss monk will write a history about Charlemagne for his great-grandson, a man called Charles the Fat, who we'll get to in a little bit. But this is what he had to say that Charlemagne had to say about the Vikings. Quote, Do you know why I weep so bitterly, my true servants? I have no fear of those worthless rascals doing any harm to me, but I am sad at heart to think that even during my lifetime they have dared to touch this shore. I am torn by a great sorrow because I foresee what evil things they will do to my descendants and their subjects. End quote. Now, again, that story is probably apocryphal. How would that Swiss monk know what Charlemagne said? But of course, it could have been passed down to him. A famous last words. But it gives us a good view of how they thought of Charlemagne. One, he was almost a divine figure, able to see the future. And while the Vikings weren't too big of a trouble for him, he was able to deal with them. For his descendants, well, many tears shall be shed. But luckily for the descendants of Europe, when it comes to the piratical ventures that would accompany them the next few hundred years, once Charlemagne defeated a man called Godfried in the North Frisian area of his empire, there was somewhat of a lull in these Viking raids. And it makes sense. It's because when the Vikings first went down to these Frankish lands, they met resistance. Charlemagne had armies that he could deal with them. He built fortified bridges. The hen house was guarded. And even when Charlemagne died, since he only had one heir, there would be no great Frankish succession crisis, something that will plague them for their whole entire existence. The last surviving heir of this great Charlemagne was a man called Louis, and he would later earn the term Louis the Pious, because just as his father had forcibly converted pretty much all of Europe at this point, well, besides really Denmark and the Scandinavian areas, and there's also some arts in the Baltic, he would continue that effort by being known for being a church builder. Just as his father was very religious, he was even more so. And it's possible that it all you know, could have worked out the same way it did for Charlemagne, to where this Louis the Pious could have had a long reign, as he also currently had three sons. Maybe a few of them died. So the competition would naturally weed itself out, so there wouldn't need to be a civil war for this great empire the Charlemagne had built. But 817, while at a church attending a sermon, the gallery collapsed, killing many people on it. It said that Louis barely survived it, and it scared him. Scared him only the way that truly seeing death for the first time tan him any man. So, he did what any good parent does in that situation. He makes a will. Cleans up the estate a little. Makes it to where his children, in the terrible happenstance of him dying, don't have to deal with all the messiness that comes from splitting an estate. And the special messiness of splitting an empire. 
So he comes up with this ordinatio in Paris. Basically, it was his will, how he wants the empire split between his three sons. And as he'd already had two of his sons made co, not co-emperors, but kings underneath him in 815, this was really, shouldn't have been that big of a deal. All he was doing was adding his youngest son, Louis. They liked having the same names. <laughs> That's why they always have these great adjectives like the fat, the bald, the dull, the simple. It is what really made it to where people could differentiate the different monarchs from a single name. So there's Louis, of course, played his empire. Lothar, his oldest, was going to be co-emperor with him until he eventually died. And he would be based in Aachen, which is a town in modern-day West Germany. He, of course, would control most of the empire, as an emperor needs to control most of the empire, because he needs some, some way to keep his vassals in check. And usually that's just because he has more power than them. And his other two sons would also have kingdoms. One would be based in Bavaria, a man who would later be called Louis the German, because his kingdom is based in the Germanic areas of the empire. He gave his middle son, a man called Pippin, the areas around Aquitaine. So he thought this would be no big deal. It shouldn't have been. Why would anyone care that he was just adding a third son to this succession line? But he forgot someone. Someone who he was related to, this man called Bernard. And Bernard was his nephew. Bernard would set the ball rolling to allow the Vikings to slip into Europe. See, Bernard at this time was what was considered the king of Italy, as he controlled most of northern Italy. And one thing kings really hate, and they've always hated this, is they hate when they stop being a king. And while Bernard could live under Louis the Pious, as he was from the next generation, you know, he's waiting his turn for the older generation to die so he can officially be the king of Italy, when all these lands were handed out, he was put underneath one of the sons, and he didn't really like that. So he does what really any uppity vassal does when they don't like something. He revolted. And this revolt, well, it wasn't such a big deal. Louis the Pious would actually end up going to Burgundy and meeting Bernard there when he didn't have an army. Crushed the revolt immediately. So Bernard, you know, knowing that he can't win because he doesn't have an army, he goes to his uncle and asks for clemency. He surrenders. I give up. He falls on his family's good graces. But Louis had just seen his father win this empire after being ruthless to his enemies. And this was the first cracks that he could see in it. The first time that this Frankish empire had a chance of falling. So he made sure to set the example. Even though his nephew had come to him and begged him for his forgiveness. He denied it. He would not kill him because he is blood. But he would make sure that he could never hold political power again. He could never lead armies again. He would be blinded. He'd have to live the rest of his life in darkness. Now while this was an act of kindness as Louis could have just killed him. Maiming people in the early middle ages wasn't an exact science. They didn't have it all down like they would. Well, in the late medieval ages. Now, Europe would get better at this by, like, the 1600s. England will have, like, official charts when they hang pirates for how long the rope needs to be by body weight to where if it was too short, the pirate's neck wouldn't properly snap, so they'd sit there struggling. And, you know, if it was too much, then the head could pop off. 
And while that may look cool for some people, it kind of ruins the whole entire hanging experience. Makes the executioner look shabby. But in this early Middle Ages, they weren't so precise. And so when Louis the Pius's guards took these iron rods and stuck them into Bernard's eyes to blind him, they went a little too deep. And he had severe burns on his eyes, so he wasn't just blind. He was not fighting for his life. After two days, he lost that fight. And this death would hang on Louis the Pious like a millstone. It's sad that his guilt afterwards made him go even deeper into his religious fervor. You have to remember that killing one's family has always been one of the worst crimes that any human can do. In almost all cultures. It's almost universal. There's just something we don't like about it. it makes us all shiver. And he blamed himself. A man came to him, Bernard, came to him with no army, asking for forgiveness. And he killed him, his nephew. So a fervent man builds churches in recompense. That's why he's called Louis the Pious. This death of Bernard, of his nephew, is going to hang on Louis for his whole life. And why it made him a more merciful man, made him more forgiving, made him less willing to do the hard things. He was a ruler in a hard time. And sometimes to bring peace in those times, rulers had to do despicable things. His father Charlemagne did what is now called the Massacre at Verdun, where he took 4,500 Saxons and beheaded them all in a single day. That's how you break the will of a people. You show them that they're going to die, and with them, their children, their parents, everyone they know, that if they fight you, there will be nothing left for these independent-minded tribes. You had to convince them that what they would consider to be slavery to live underneath you was better than the alternative. And to do that, you had to make the alternative Armageddon. Is that really worth revolting against? Is that really worth holding to your religion for? Would you be willing to fight for your land if you knew that failure meant that no one you knew would be alive to pick up the pieces? But, if you went along with the royal decree of this foreign man, you just didn't fight. You allowed him to be the nominal ruler. You paid your taxes to him instead of the local warlord. You got to live. Rulers at that time, especially Frankish rulers, knew how to stack the deck in their favor, how to make the, the proposition of subjugation seem downright merciful. When Bernard died... Louis lost this fearsome reputation that his father had spent so many years carefully crafting. He lost the reputation that had been his birthright. As even though he put out the eyes of his nephew, who would see that to be very ruthless, he showed weakness and that he was sorry he did it. He made a public apology in front of the Pope. Had a public Catholic confession where he had all his nobles, all his sons, all his families come watch him give this confession to this Pope to see how sorry he was. Asked for forgiveness for God because he could not forgive himself. And this had a very interesting effect to where when I look at the history, I see this as him showing to his family that he would never be that ruthless man again. And it's really noble. In today's era, we'd hope that all fathers would treat their families like this. All patriarchs would look out for their family, love them no matter what. We have Bible verses about the prodigal son returning. The father loves him anyway. But the children of Louis the Pious were hungry. 
lived in a ruthless time, saw their grandfather conquer an empire while they were still alive, heard stories about him their whole entire life. He was the great man they needed to achieve to be, and you can't do that ruling a petty kingdom under an emperor. At 817, when this happened, it did not seem that the children were too uppity. Everyone seemed to be happy with their station in life. They each had large kingdoms, really the largest in Europe at that time, besides like the Byzantine Empire. But of course, there were kings, not emperors. Lothar would be the emperor once his father, Louis the Pious, died. Each of the sons would have great autonomy to do whatever they want within their own kingdom. Really, it was going to be an early form of the Holy Roman Empire. Or there'd be a nominal emperor, but each individual kingdom still had pretty much was still its own independent country. It's really shocking how fast an empire can unravel the right circumstances happen. In 817, Louis the Pious had a wife that he loved called Ermengard. She had borne him three adult sons, Lothar, Pippin, and another child called Louis, the youngest. And this worked until that wife died. And while most emperors at this time would take mistresses and whatnot, Louis was a pious man. And he did not want to take a mistress, because that was sin. So, he married again to a lady called Judith of Bavaria in 819. And in four years, this Judith bore Louis the Pious, another son, this man called Charles, later to be known as Charles the Bald. And, as you can see, this causes a problem. Because if it was a bastard, none of the succession laws would have changed. The Frankish law of splitting the kingdom would not have be affected. But as Louis the Pious took this girl, this Judith of Bavaria, to be his wife, this was an official child. So the empire had to be split again, instead of in three ways, in four. And kings don't like to give up territory willy-nilly. And so in 829, when Charles was six, and the empire, again, was split this way so he would have a kingdom too. He was given a kingdom called Alemania, down in southern France. And then there was a lull for about three years. And the three older brothers, Lothar, Pippin, Louis the... Well, he'll be called Louis the German. I'll call him that just to make it easier to understand. All decided to revolt. And it started in 329. When Lothar and Pippin put their father under house arrest. And then took the lady emperor. And then locked her in a nunnery to become a nun so she couldn't be able to mess with the politics anymore. They would try to do the same to their father. Try to get him to voluntarily go to a monastery, become a monk. He was so pious, so obviously in their minds. This is the lo most logical step. Never mind if he became a monk, he would not get to dabble in politics anymore. It would finally be time for the next generation to step up and rightfully take its place at the head of Europe. But the old emperor, Louis the Pious, was not without his own allies. And most staunch of all of them would be Frankish traditionalists, what we would call like arch-conservatives, the people who like the old ways. And the old ways say that you don't get your inheritance until your father dies. And the old ways say, that no matter how much you dislike it, if your father has another son, another hand gets a cookie. This revolt really kicked off in 831, 832. And it's the beginning of a political situation that I'm sure had Louis the Pious pulling his hair out and lamenting to God, why him? Because it's almost impossible 
As he had an empire, which while it did control most of its borders, there were still Germanic tribes at the edges of the borders that would like to take back their land. They would like a little revenge for the atrocities committed on them by his father and him. All the while, he has disloyal sons who are constantly trying to split up his empire and will be just keep revolting. And he's about to have fleets of Vikings right his most profitable farmlands, his most viable coastline in the great emporium system that his father set up. Just thinking about it, it begs the question, what's harder, to create an empire, to form it in blood, or to hold an empire, to keep it when all your enemies get to throw their best shot? Everyone wants a piece of the king. And normally, the king has the defense of, well, if you swing, you better hit, because if not, I'll come back with a haymaker. But can you put all that effort into a single punch? When you have four combatants around you, Louis could not ever really deal with any single one of his problems. Because every single time he'd get, say, his sons settled down to where they wouldn't revolt anymore, well, then the Vikings would start raiding. So he now has to spend manpower protecting his coastline. Or if his sons are being amicable and, you know, the Vi- it's not Viking raiding season, then Brittany would revolt or another land on the exterior. His whole entire life, he blamed his situation on his original actions towards his nephew, Bernard. This was God punishing him, and thus punishing all Christendom for his mistake, for his great sin. But hopefully you can see the opportunity that was opened up. For the richest place in Europe, which had just had an economic miracle and had recovered to, well, not Roman times, it's getting closer to Roman times. The 200 years of stagnation had finally ended in the Viking century of just being those people from the north, the Norse, the North men trading every once in a while, but really not being a big player on the international scene. Well, that was also over. If Lindisfarne is them stabbing the heart of Christendom, what they're about to do to the Franks is like slicing the throat, gutting the body, then pissing on it. And this we'll see the first example of what I like to think of as the Viking way of siege. And that when the Vikings went to any random village or monastery, mostly monasteries at this point, they had a very specific way of looting it. Now at this point in Europe, the Vikings' greatest advantage is, of course, their ships. They're the only really people in Europe at this time, especially Western Europe, that had any large naval fleet. The Byzantines and the Moors will have some in the Eastern Mediterranean. That's a long way from England and France at this point. So the Vikings set up a system, again, to where their liths, these brotherhoods, would go on expeditions, usually in the fall or the spring, and they would try to get back home to winter. So while the first few monasteries they hit, it was like a shockwave to where they didn't know what was going to happen. It stunned them like a flashbang. The rest of Europe and the monasteries eventually figured out the Vikings' motif. And they eventually set up precautions against the Vikings. While the precautions were not of a military manner, there was not armed guards to protect the people. Well, there were some armed guards, it just wasn't adequate armed guards at this point. The main defense against the Vikings is you saw them coming towards your shore, and you left. You grabbed the most viable things you could carry, and you leave. Because the Vikings weren't going to stay there, they weren't conquerors the advantage that of course these peasants or nobles would have of any local area 
is they would have horses too, because the Vikings couldn't carry horses on their long ships. And they were they could ride horses, of course, and they did use cavalry in battle, but that was usually confiscated from the people in the local area. So you could always just run. But if you run, that would mean that you'd eventually come back. You'd bring your valuables back. And those valuables are what draw the Vikings. The hack silver, the gold, the iconography of the different monasteries. So the Vikings would find out that, well, if you're, you aren't going to fight for this piece of land, for this monastery, for these items, and you're going to come back and bring them all back, why don't we just try again next year? And that's what they would do. Is they would come back year after year after year. We talked a little bit about this on Lindisfarne last episode, but the actual ruins of Lindisfarne, if you go look at it, there's evidence of it being burned multiple times. Because every time it would be burned, the monks would come back. And they were not the only ones who do this. Anuar Miantier, a monk, had this to say about the Vikings coming back and again and again. Quote, The number of ships grow larger and larger. The great hosts of Northmen continually increase. They capture every city they pass. None can withstand them. There's hardly a place, hardly a monastery that's respected. All the inhabitants take the flight, and few and far between are those who dare to say, Stay where you are. Stay where you are. Fight back. Do battle for your country, for your children, for your family. In their paralysis, in the midst of their mutual rivalries, they buy back at the cost of tribute that which they should have defended. End quote. That's the other great part about this Viking strategy. They figured out that if you keep attacking the same people over and over and over again to steal their stuff, to kill them, eventually they'll just give you their stuff in the first place as tribute, so you would stop le- stop attacking, leave them alone. But then the ignorance of the Western European, of the Norse ways, come into view, to where they would pay individual liths to leave them alone. Remember, the lith is the brotherhood, just the single individual political institution that is usually headed by a single Viking warlord. Think less like a nation and more like a clan, but a clan that's not tied by blood to one another, but by oaths, by promises of spoil. But these lists had no greater loyalty. There was no great Norse king that they could pay to stop all ships from attacking them. So they would pay the tribute, think they were safe, and they get raided year after year after year. The monk I just talked about from Nuamiantier would be raided 17 years in a row. After 17 years of raids, they eventually become commonplace. And the denizens, the monks who live in this monastery, simply put the raids up on their calendar. And they know when to leave, when to take the most precious of their iconography, all their gold, all their silver, and simply leave the island. And wait for the Vikings to burn it down, and they can come back. One of the advantages of having stone monasteries. But then the Vikings figured out it was commonplace and started... You know, changing it up a little, changing the script. So the, the inhabitants, the monks, eventually gave up. They left this holy French island, never to return. These cataclysmic attacks to the really pillars, the foundation of French religious life, were only allowed to happen because the French nobles at that time had other priorities. These Viking raids became secondary background priorities giving away to the, you know, main plot of this great theatrical tale, the succession crisis, and the multiple succession crises that would pop up throughout Louis the Pious's reign, and the reign of his children, the reign of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Charlemagne built the empire, 
He built an empire on sand with weak foundations. And the whole entire idea of the, you know, Viking wave siege that I kind of hinted at earlier. Where they would find an area and just keep hitting it over and over and over and over and over again. Until the people in the area just quit. They gave up. They either started paying the Vikings an annual fee to leave them alone, which usually didn't work. Or they left. Well, the Vikings, first they do it to Dorstadt. And then they start doing it to all of Francia at this time. They start hitting the most important areas. Remember, Dorstadt is an imperium. A great financial capital of all of Europe at that time. The island of Noirmoutier, the religious capital at that time. It almost gives off, you know, the way that the 9-11 attackers, they attacked the World Trade Centers because they were the financial capital of America. The White House, the political capital, the Pentagon, the military capital. The Vikings were doing this too. And they were doing it over and over and over again. To where these capitals eventually just started to break down. And with them, the foundations of the countries that had been built upon them. And Louis the Pious has to deal with his children. Again, the main problems really start to crop up in 829. When Louis the Pious officially gave Charles, his youngest son, his official share of the empire. Because once that happened... I'm sure it set off the scheming that the other brothers had done for, well, probably a decade at that point to actually revolt against their father and maintain their current shares. And you have to remember that at this time, there wasn't really a seat of power for the different kings slash emperors in the Frankish kingdom. While they each had their own individual land, within that land, they were more like a traveling circus of imperial authority. To where while they would winter in different cities and they, you know, they had their home areas during the spring, fall, and summer when they, you could actually move around. They were usually moving around all across their emperor to remind the different counts who was really in charge. But Louis the Pious realized something was up when his two sons, Louis the German and Pippin, all of a sudden met up in a town called Campagne. There, he was surrounded by, in the annals of St. Bertin, it says he was surrounded by the forces of Pippin, but you would think that he would probably be surrounded by both of his youngest sons, because they were in this rebellion together. But he was surrounded, taken into custody, and when Lothar, the oldest son, would arrive later, he was given over to him for safekeeping. And it all would have worked out, except... Later that same year, Lothar would call an assembly, really to form a new army. Call up the local retainers, and this area was mostly the Rhineland. So he would call these people to his army. And when they got there, they saw the emperor in custody and the oldest son Lothar in charge. And these particular retainers had more of a conservative streak than the retainers that the sons had originally taken to take their father into custody. Those had been called from their own individual thieves and were more loyal to them individually. These have been called from the empire. And these believed that the old Frankish way of succession, where you ruled till you died, should still be in place. So, Louis the Pious was freed and made emperor again. That was the end of the first civil war. Now... If you were Louis the Pious and your sons had just revolted against you, tried to force you into an early retirement, what would you do? How would you properly punish them? Well, for Lothar, he was pardoned of treason. But his main holdings had mostly been in the lowlands in north of France. So Louis the Pious sent him to Italy. 
Pippin and Louis the German weren't really punished that much because even though they were the original ones to take Louis the Pious into custody, when the Grand Assembly had been called by Lothar for the next campaigning season, and the different retinues from around the Empire had a, a converged on him and eventually sided with Louis the Pious to dispose Lothar and put him back on the throne, Louis the German and Pippin had really sided with their father in that particular instance. When you're in a giant military encampment and lots of the soldiers there are against you, it's probably a good time to jump ship on a rebellion. Because as we will see, they still wanted to rebel. I just don't think they thought they would be successful at that time. Better to bide your time, keep your holdings, and try again when your father is weaker. In A32, Louis the Pious would call his son Pippin to him again. When Pippin got there, he felt like he had been dishonored. His father hadn't properly used enough pomp and circumstance to greet him properly. So, when his father called to him, he left for Aquitaine. And there's a lot of reasons why this could have been an issue. To him, if his father wasn't happy to see him and didn't like him anymore, it was very well possible that Louis the Pious could have been trying to dispose of Pippin to give Charles Pippin's chair. And while we don't believe that Louis the Pious was trying to do that, in Pippin's mind, it's very well possible that he could have been. So Pippin runs to Aquitaine, to that because that's where his main seat of power was, to raise an army and try to defeat his father. Louis the Pious sees this and is distraught. He can't believe that his sons are doing this to him again so soon. So he calls the banners, has an army start forming up just outside of Aquitaine to go invade it. To bring Pippin to justice. And right before he invades, he gets news from the eastern part of the empire. Louis the German has invaded Swabia, an eastern province of the empire. Once again, two of Louis' sons gather armies to march against him. So, what do you do? Well, what Louis tried to do is he tried to consolidate. Instead of having four sons have massive amounts of territory that they could use to rival his own authority, he decided that he'd only have two. He gave Charles Pippin's share of Aquitaine, and he gave Lothar Louis the German's share of, well, at this point, Germania, of Germany. And he thought, well, that should give me two allies that I can then use to crush my two rebellious sons, and then that'll be the end of it. Splitting an empire four ways may be too much, but you know, splitting an empire in half, hopefully his two sons would be happy with that. Well, his two inheriting sons, at least. Unfortunately for him, Lothar had already gathered an army at this time and was on the move to meet his two brothers. And with him, Lothar brought a wild card. He brought the Pope. Now, originally, he was going to use the Pope as a mediating force to maybe make his father agree to split the empire between the three sons. The Pope was the highest power in Christendom, and his father well, was called Louis the Pious, so he, he was fairly religious. It was expected that he would do whatever the Pope said. The men on a field in modern-day Alsace, and this field would become notorious through history. This field is now called the Field of Lies for what happened on it. Anyway, the three brothers and the Pope all converge together. And they have a fairly large army. Enough to where if they battle their father in the field of battle, if it turns bloody, they have a real shot at winning. This would not be like the first civil war to where Louis the Pious would get ambushed by his sons 
No, this time, Louis the Pious comes with an army of loyal retainers, men who had taken oaths of loyalty to him. It would not be like the first civil war. And they arrive at this battle, and they both, both armies set their encampment, and prepare themselves for a battle. But Louis the Pious doesn't want to have a battle, and his sons don't really want to have a battle either. They didn't want their father to give up all power and, you know, let, let the next generation take over. Step into the spotlight. But they don't want to kill their father. So, they sit down to have negotiations. To have this, well, air quotes neutral third party, Pope Gregory IV, mediate for them. Now, it's believed that at this time, Gregory IV is already in the pocket of Lothar. So, any decision that he makes probably isn't going to be very fair and balanced. This is what the Annals of St. Pretend say about what happened here. Quote, When the Lord Emperor met with them, he was completely unable to prevent them from carrying on their willful course. Rather, it was they who deceived the people who had come with the Lord Emperor by evil persuasions, false promises, with the result that everyone deserted him. End quote. It's called the Field of Lies. Because with lies and bribery, the sons were able to dispose the father without a battle. Again, we have a second civil war with no bloodshed, only with people being stabbed in the back. The emperor was once again in custody of his children, the empress, and Charles was sent away and had a watch put on him just so he wouldn't get up to anything crazy. This was in 833. And if you're the three rebellious children, you would think that this would be the end of it. They finally defeated their father. He has no more real allies. They have the emperor split between them evenly. They have the pope on their side. And Louis the Pious seems almost broken, almost sad, to where having your whole entire army leave you, having all the men who swore those oaths of loyalty that they would fight for you, betray them... I'm sure he started to question, why me? Why was I given such rebellious children? Why was I given such a rebellious empire? Why was I given an empire with so many external threats, yet we can't seem to work together to fight them? But don't think that being a pious man was always so bad for Louis. As, since he was so pious and his children weren't as pious, he was given a lot of the more ceremonial jobs to do. You know, the stuff that wasn't dangerous but would keep him out of the hair of the three children. He thus was given the job to preside over what was called the Synod of Theonville, which was just a meeting of the different classic representatives throughout the empire. So the different abbots, bishops, that, that sort of thing. But at this Synod, the ecclesiastic representatives decided something interesting. They decided that they liked Louis the Pious more than his sons, probably because he was a better patron of the church. So, they thus declared that Louis the Pious was their emperor again, and that the vows that he had made when he had to give up power before, in the field of lies, that he would never become king again or emperor again, well, those don't hold true. They weren't made in good faith, so he does not have to behold to them anymore. He was then put in his imperial robes. When the Synod dispersed, they went back to their local parishes and told everyone that Louis the Pious was emperor again. And right after this happened, in 835, Dorstat rated for the second year in a row. And it says the emperor got angry at this. His sons had allowed the pagans to start raiding the Holy Empire again. 
So he starts setting up coastal defenses. He starts thinking about different ways to defeat them. You know, the classic armored bridges that the Charlemagne had done so many years before. He starts putting patrols on the coastline. And while I call him emperor, really at this time, he, he really didn't control that much land. Lothar still controlled his own fiefdom. Pippin controlled Aquitaine. And Louis the German controlled most of the German territory. To fix this, Louis the Pious starts sending letters to his oldest son, Lothar, telling him that he needs to respect his father and come back into the fold. In 835, we also get the little interesting fact that there's a man called Horik who was the king of Denmark. And he wrote a letter to the emperor saying that these raids on Doristat and Frisia, I had nothing to do with. <laughs> While they were Vikings from Denmark, I didn't give them approval to raid. So don't take your anger out on me for what they're doing. Viking internal politics was just as messy as the Frankish. We, of course, just know less about it. Anyway, in 836, Lothar does eventually agree with his father. He decides that he will come back into the fold. He'll become a king under the emperor again. And Louis, in a sign of great family re recompense, gives Pippin back his land and then gives Louis the German back his German land, legally. It's thus back to the way it was in, say, 830. Like nothing had changed. One big happy family. But the youngest son, Charles, still doesn't have any empire. And Charles has the special quality that all youngest children really do. In that he's the favorite. And Louis the Pious really does want to give him something. You don't want to leave your last child with nothing when his brothers are as ruthless as Louis the Pious's brood is. So in 837, Louis the Pious decides to fix all this. But before he does, he gets, he gets a message from Frisia again. Basically saying that the Vikings had come back, they raided Dorstadt again, they raided different parts of Frisia, and then they had left. And he's outraged. Because just last year, he had gone up there and set up defenses. He had given people charge of certain areas to defend. How is it that these Vikings can come back and raid again? Was it treason? Did they leave their post? So, he goes to Frisia again. Decide what's wrong. Like, what's happening? How does this keep happening? And <laughs> the historic sources say... That it was partly incompetence to where some of the leaders of men that he put up there, the counts and whatnot, simply weren't intelligent enough to properly defend the coast. <laughs> the historic record actually just says most of the reason that they weren't able to defend the coast was because the task was impossible. It was not able to be done. The Viking longship was such a leap in military technology that they couldn't do anything about it. The Vikings would hit places where they weren't, usually hamlets, usually monasteries, undefended towns without walls, and they would run before the army got there. Because you have to remember, this is in the early Middle Ages. Castles aren't everywhere. Most towns don't have walls. The speed of the Vikings just made it impossible to defend against. So, Louis the Pious, he mixes some things up, puts new leaders in charge of the ones who he believes were simply incompetent, explains that they need to focus their defenses on certain areas, the most important, most profitable areas, the places with the most people in it, and then gives a little order to the people in Frisia to start building a fleet. If, the, if we can't defeat the Vikings because they go to sea before we can catch them, 
well, let's catch them at sea. Let's take away their advantage. And then he leaves. And while one would love to think that this was maybe a bump in the road for the Viking takeover of Europe, that this would stop them, keep them at bay, but the Frankish Empire really needed to be unified under an emperor. That was the only way that they were able to properly defend their long coastline with lots of navigable rivers. But Charles still doesn't have any land. In 837, Louis the Pious gives his son Charles the regions of Burgundy and Almania, which is like the eastern part of modern-day France. And this works out for them. His other brothers don't revolt. He's able to get a little older, and there's peace in the realm. It even gets simpler. In 838, Pippin, his middle son, the, the original one that arrested him and put him under house arrest, well, Pippin dies. And that leaves Aquitaine, Pippin's realm, uh, for reallotment. So Louis the Pious does the normal thing to where he takes Pippin's realm, throws it back in the pot, and sees that Charles still has the smallest realm, so gives it to Charles. The problem, the Aquitanian nobles had already elected their new king by now. No longer were they going to allow this kingdom to be, by appointment, it would now be hereditary. And the person they wanted to be their king was called Pippin II. And Pippin II really didn't like having all the power taken away from him. So he revolted. And as he revolted, he had an ally in Louis the German, who also revolted at the same time. And Lothar, for the first time in almost 10 years, Lothar did not revolt against his father. Because Louis the Pious disinherited Pippin II and Louis the German. And he gave all of Louis the German's lands, besides Bavaria, to Lothar in exchange for his help in the Civil War. So it was Louis the Pious, Charles, his youngest, and Lothar, his oldest, against his two middle children. And that's how the Third Civil War started. And it would not be as bloodless as the other two. During this, at this time, Louis the Pious will have reached the age of 61. Really too old to be gallivanting throughout his empire, leading armies, destroying armies. But he had to. So he did. And in his last great act... He took his army east, and he crushed his son, Louis the German, and made him retreat into what was called the Ostmark, the eastern marches of the empire. He gave Lothar the eastern portion of the empire, and he gave Charles the western part, because he then, of course, went back and subjugated Aquitaine too, disinherited Pippin II. But once he was done with this, well, final campaign, he fell ill. And this illness, at 61, in the Middle Ages, well, he didn't have long to live. To him, it seemed like the Empire was secure. He only had two inheriting sons by this time. He was relatively stable. The Frisian defenses were making progress. Well, it wasn't great, because in 38, 39, and 40, Frisia was again raided by the Vikings. It was progress. It all looked like it could work out in the end. In 840, the last stabilizing figure of the Empire... The massive Charlemagne Empire that had been won in blood almost 40 years ago died. He died with the last 10 years of his life, being either held in captivity by his sons or fighting them. He died with the empire he fought so long to protect at the mercy of pagan Vikings and internal strife. But he also died knowing that peace was obtainable. This was a very large empire and split between only two people meant that they both got massive empires for the time, even in modern day times. So it would have been a massive empire. As soon as he heard about the death of his father, Lothar with a heavy heart took up the sword, 
called the Banners and invaded his brother. His father's corpse was not cold. The real Frankish Civil Wars have just begun. Real quick before we get back into the Vikings and how they took advantage of the situation to run ramshaw over the countries that will come out of this great empire. I really want to talk about Louis the Pious real quickly because he was such a fascinating character. Now you have to remember in history, the sources you read and the current source I read loved Louis the Pious and was of course writing about him in a positive light. But I like to think it's because he seemed like a pretty good person or maybe a bad emperor he was religiously fervent he certainly was active campaigning well into his 60s he was a good son to charlemagne and from what i can tell a decent father to his children if maybe he was a little absent and didn't really teach them to share very well but reading the historical sources you really get the feeling that he was dealt a terrible hand yet was able to make do with it for a good while For example, in the Field of Lies, when his three sons and the Pope are arrayed against him, he could have just immediately gone to battle with them. He was willing to sit there and take his time and try to talk it out and fix their issues, even as his army was leaving him. Or the many times he's deposed to power, when he eventually does take power back, he's very lenient with his family. And again, many people believe it's because... He felt so bad about killing his nephew Bernard so many years before. (laughs) But in the sources, every time he takes power, it basically says that the only people he punished were the most at fault. Just like Charlemagne in his final years was setting up defenses for the Vikings because apparently he knew they were the next big threat on the horizon. The last years of Louis the Pious' reign were the same. He was setting up defenses against the pirates. He was building a fleet to go take the fight to them. But then he got distracted. His children revolted again and on campaign, he got sick and died. One can't help but wonder what Europe would look like if he didn't. When I think about what the death of Louis the Pious was really like, I can't help but think of like when the Weather Channel is showing a massive Category 5 hurricane hitting the US and you see the seawall start to get battered and it's still holding up. But it keeps getting hit by bigger and bigger waves until eventually it fails and the ocean can flood into the city. For as long as the seawall is standing, there's hope that this hurricane won't be that bad, that the ocean's fury will be beaten back. But when the seawall goes, with it goes any hope that we had. With it goes any hope for an easy cleanup, a chance to rebuild. With Louis the Pious's death, with him with the hope of united Francia. With him with the hope of a united front against the Vikings. With him went the hope of peace. A40 is a watershed moment. Really in the history of Europe. It's one of those years that are really just like begging for us to ask the question like what if? What if Louis the Pious lives for a few more years? What if he's able to build his fleet and take on the Vikings at sea? What if he's eventually able to wrangle his children? What if he's eventually able to leave the Empire with only one or two of his children instead of the four he eventually did? What if? But he couldn't. And even though he died in 840, news travels slow back then, and it wasn't until 841 that we really could see the true calamity that his death would bring forth. For in 841, his three remaining sons, 
Lothar up in the north and really the lowlands, Louis the German and the far eastern marches, Charles down south, and Pippin the second at this point because his first son, Pippin the first, had died. But the nobles of Aquitaine at that time had elected his son, Pippin the second, to be the king of Aquitaine. In 841, all these four different political powers started to coalesce all the forces they could muster. They knew that there would be one final battle for the Empire, and so they would take their time, a full year, call all the banners, leave no one at home, and win the Empire that they all felt was their due. This Battle of Fontenoy was fought in the middle of France, almost the smack dead center. And it's very thematic that it was in the middle, because it was the whole entire Empire, finally, after so many years, all coming together at one place. Except, of course, they aren't fighting an external enemy. They're not all coming together in unity for the betterment of all. They're coming together to kill each other. In Lothar, he was head of what was called the Imperialist Faction, which was basically him trying to take the Empire from his brothers. He didn't believe in the Frankish way of succession, the Selic Law. And he was able to get Pippin II on his side, because one of the last acts of Louis the Pious was to go to Aquitaine, and put Charles on that throne too. So all that Lothar had to do was say that Pippin, you can be the king of Aquitaine. You'll just be underneath me, and the empire will continue. The other two brothers, Louis the German and Charles, of course, were, there's different names for what you can call their side. Maybe the conservatives, because they wanted to maintain the Selic law. They wanted to keep their kingdoms. The secessionists, they wanted the empire to break apart. The Divisionists. Many different names, but basically they wanted to keep their kingdom so they didn't want to be under the rule of their big brother. In 841, Lothar brings the people from the Lowlands. The people from North Italy. Lots of the strongest imperialists within the empire. Louis the German, of course, came from the far eastern marches, with Charles being on the southeast of France, mostly. And... Pippin II of Aquitaine, of course, was drawing his power from Aquitaine. The Battle of Fontainebleau was really a very centralized battle. The Empire all came together to have this great battle to see who would be the next Emperor. And well, we only have one to two real accounts of people who were at the battle, who saw what happened. And this is from one of them. Quote, Fontenay, they call its fountain, manner to the peasant known. There the slaughter, there the ruin. Of the blood of the Frankish race. Plains and forests shiver, shudder, horror wakes the silent marsh. Neither dew nor shower nor rainfall yields its freshness to that field. Where they fell, the strong men fighting, the shrewdest in battle skill. Father, mother, sister, brother, friends, the dead with tears have wept. And this deed of crime accomplished, which I have in verse have told. Angelbert, myself, I witnessed, fighting with the other men. I alone, of all remaining in this battle's foremost line. End quote. Angelbert will go on to say that 40,000 people died. And as he's specifically talking about just Louis the Germans and Charles the Bald side, there's been some people who say that 40,000 on each side died. And if 40,000 people on each side died, well, how many were wounded? And you start getting estimates for this battle, which sounded impossible. 150,000 on each side. You won't get 
numbers that big in battles for another thousand years. The numbers can't be that big, right? It's unimaginable. There's been other estimates that really they could only probably muster maybe 30,000 each side. But even still, that's a massive battle. One of the largest in all the Middle Ages in Europe. A time period that would go on for 600 more years and not even come close to matching the scale of this slaughter. This was a truly apocalyptic battle for the people who lived through it. No one at that time would ever see slaughter this great ever again. And it's so easy to see why it was so terrible. Because really the worst battles there are, are the close ones. The ones where both sides feel that like they have a chance to win. Because that's when people are willing to stay on the field all day and kill people all day to the night. It takes time to kill a lot of people, even for thousands of people. It takes time. So the longer a battle goes, the more of the grind there is. And it's sad that this battle was close from the very beginning. Lothar was alone at first. Pippin hadn't reached him yet. So Louis the German and Charles the Bald's armies were able to grind on him. And remember, these, this was very much a civil war in the sense that these are the same people fighting with the same weaponry, with the same tactics. So we, we don't think that the kill count was too one-sided. This was not like a Mongol army, which would absolutely decimate their opponents. No, it was very, very even all day. And Lothar was pushed back until Pippin II arrives. And then the grind simply gets bigger, larger. Until, eventually, day falls to night, Lothar has to pull back, and the Empire is split. But it wasn't as resounding a victory as the Separatists, the Divisionists, would like it to have been. They didn't win the Empire for themselves, and they didn't secure their safety with this battle. Because Lothar, of course, was able to pull back, able to raise more troops again. Pippin II was able to go back to Aquitaine. And the Frankish civil wars would continue. All the battle did was take really 40 years of peace that Charlemagne and Louis the Pious had made for their people. For there was really no great struggle that they had to spend the lives of their peasants on for 40 years. In a time of great economic boom to where the Frankish kingdom was at its zenith, people were finally getting richer and richer and richer. More and more things are getting made as the economic progress of the of the people is finally expanding after so many hard years after the fall of Rome. So of course the 150,000 people on your side is almost impossible. But we know it was a lot because we know that everyone went to that battle. We know that there had been a long era of peace, of buildup, of preparedness. Almost like in the First World War, how everyone had a ton of guns, a ton of artillery. For all the years of peace, we just made ready for a bigger war. This battle really gives off that those kinds of vibes. Years of peace squandered in a day. And when you read the history books for this, say in the Annals of St. Pretend, you start to see all the political forces coalesce and get ready to have this massive battle. And well, quote, Meanwhile, the Danish pirates sailed down the channel and attacked the Rowan, plundered the town with pillage, fire, and sword, slaughtered or took captive the monks and the rest of the population, 
and laid waste to all the monasteries and other places along the banks of the scene, or else took large pavements and left them thoroughly terrified. End quote. The cracks in the empire that started with Louis the Pious's death, then are widened by this battle, is what the Vikings are going to sail down into. When all the fighting men are taken away from their homes to march to fight, well, at this point, a civil war. Those are the times to where the Vikings could smell the blood in the water. They had a very shark-like quality in that aspect. To where, the reason I spent so much time talking about the political instability of the, the Frankish political system by the 840s. Is that Europe at this time had the tools to deal with the Vikings. Charlemagne had shown that a unified empire that put guards at the mouth of the river. That stationed armies at the coast. Fast react forces, really. Louis the Pious and Charlemagne both believed that they could build a fleet to contest the Vikings, at least. And it's very well possible they could have. But no one did. And the times of relative peace, what an end. Because no longer would there be a single empire with the political will to face the Vikings. No, now men will be pulled away from the coast, away from the shoreline, to fight civil wars. Men would no longer be building bridges to at the mouths of rivers to protect those rivers. They'd be using the Vikings to attack their foes. We hear a lot about the different attacks the Vikings did. That's really because, again, they were excellent at the, the hit-and-run tactics. But one of the aspects of the Viking way of war that people don't touch on a lot is that the Vikings didn't like to fight battles they would lose. They loved a good fight, but... They didn't think an unfair fight was worth it. So, if you had too many men for them, they didn't think they could win, they would leave. And the times where we don't see Viking raids are really the times of peace in Europe. And my own personal theory is because the men at that time would be home. There would be enough people to man the defenses on the coasts. And when those men are pulled away from the coasts to go fight wars in the interior, well, that's when you see... The explosion of Vikings from the north. So, after this battle of Fontaine, the Frankish nobility would continue to fight amongst themselves for a few more years until they eventually came to the Treaty of Verdun, to where this treaty basically split the empire. The imperialists lost, to where they couldn't project their power over the two younger brothers, and so they had to decide how they would split it. And what they did is they came to the city of Verdun, which is why it's called the Treaty of Verdun, and basically split the empire in three. And then the order from eldest to youngest, they chose the parts that they would like to rule. Lothar chose the middle part, Lothambria. Louis the German, of course, chose the German part, the eastern part, the eastern marches, and Charles was left with the western part. And this is how the empire would eventually be split, to where the eastern and the western parts would eventually become Germany and France, respectively. Lothumbria would disintegrate and would eventually be fought over by the two remaining kingdoms. And just as the world is changing around the Vikings in the really mid-8th century, they were doing a little bit of changing themselves to where when we talk about most raids, like the Lindisfarne raid, the Portsmouth raid, the Durstadt raid from the early 800s, it's all one, two, three, four, five ships. 
At 8.34, that really changes to where a wa- it's, it's almost like a watershed moment to where the Vikings decided to go all in on this new activity, this new endeavor. So instead of raids being five, ten ships like they were before, there'll now be hundreds of ships. And instead of raiding hamlets and undefended monasteries, you start seeing them hitting major political areas. Areas where troops would be stationed year-round. Areas that were not just offended by peace-loving monks, but areas with walls. Areas with people who couldn't just leave. Areas that had to be defended. And it's also a time period to where we start to no longer see the raiding season as seasonal as it was when it first started. To where when we talk about the next viking incursions we won't be talking about them coming in the spring or the fall and then leaving afterwards no you start seeing vikings they're not just called vikings but but they'll be giving names like the great raiding army the army of the scene the Somme, the lore the great summer army there'll be large viking incursions really now not just raids and the first one of these to hit well really Europe was carried out by a semi-mythical character. And the reason he's called semi-mythical, because we don't know if he really existed. Enough people at the time seemed to say that he existed for him to really be real. Enough people claimed to be his direct descendant in a time period close enough to where he lived, to where it makes sense that people would know if they, they were actually his son. But we say semi-mythical because we, again, don't know much about him. A lot of what we do know will come from hundreds of years later. The Icelandic skalds will eventually compose, will eventually write down their classic grand narrative of this man's life. His name was Ragnar Lothbrok, and he was the first real sea king. And the term sea king can be strange, because what, what is the worth of ruling over the sea? I mean, besides some good fishing, people can't live on the sea, right? You can't tax the sea. If you call the banners, not very many people from the sea will come answer them. But the reason he's called a sea king, I had to explain this way, to where he was a king of people, not land. To where Ragnar Lothbrok, was not some great king of Norway, Denmark, Sweden. Instead, he was some of a self-made man. Someone who, through his great deeds, was able to pull himself up by the bootstraps, become fantastically wealthy, and was so successful in these raids that others would want to follow him, to follow in his successes. He also, of course, gets a little lucky, where he's at his peak in 840. One of the most profitable times in history to be a pirate. So while he's known famously as a sea king, he could also be considered a pirate king, like the old Greek pirate kings before him. He may not have had a castle, but he had an army. In 845, once the empire has been split, Ragnar will take probably about 120 ships up the Seine River and start to raid that most profitable area. This was, of course, Charles. This was, of course, Charles's land, so he raised an army to go defeat the Vikings. But when he got to the river, he 
had a problem. The Vikings, every time he would try to attack them, would just sail to the other side of the river and he couldn't cross. The scene was a major river big enough to that his men in their armor could not simply go to one side and the other easily. They'd have to go to a specific crossing point, a bridge. So if the Vikings just stayed away from those areas, Charles had no way to actually defeating them. So he split his army. He had half on one bank and half on the other. That way, no matter which side the Vikings were on, he would be able to fight them. And while that may make logical sense, if you've read The Art of War, how do you defeat a larger enemy? You make him split his forces. <laughs> as soon as Charles split his forces, Ragnar fell on them like a fury, slaughtered it, said that he took 111 prisoners, and so while the other half of the army has to sit on the bank and watch all their friends die, he built individual gallows for all of them and hung all 111 people. Now remember the Vikings love hanging. There's just something in their mythos that makes them drawn to it. Odin, when he would first get the runes, would have to hang himself to become divinely inspired. So this mass hanging event, its really main goal was twofold. One, to basically warn the Franks that if you fight a Viking army and lose, there will be no quarter given. The other hard part the Vikings had is you can only take so many slaves. And young fighting men aren't the best slaves because they have a tendency to revolt. So, what do you do with those people? Nowadays, we probably do a prisoner transfer. But if the other side doesn't have any of your prisoners, and this is the Middle Ages, we have to get rid of them some way. The Vikings hang them. But just imagine, this, this was an army, so these people knew each other. Maybe they weren't friends, but acquaintances. And having to watch your acquaintance fight this viking horde by themselves and you can't help because you're on the other side of the river fail and at the end of the battle is where the true horror is found when people beg for their life and no quarter is given we don't see something morally wrong with two people fighting each other that's why we can still make hollywood movies of with battle happening but you don't see very many hollywood movies with the billing being there will be a massacre at the end of the battle no if that is put in at all to the movie it's usually as a sign of wow look at them talk about the hard parts of history the parts that we don't enjoy seeing is there something morally wrong with it it just doesn't sit right with us scares us and to frighten these frankish people charles will eventually simply pay the vikings to leave and we talked about this that when you pay people to not rage you well they have incentive to come back and try again because it ended up being a pretty good payday anyway when there's a really good chance that you don't even have to fight anyone to get this massive payday more and more vikings will start to be drawn to this activity again the fleets are getting larger the stakes becoming more do or die no longer are hamlets being raided no longer are the hit and run tactics of one two three four five viking ships enough to satisfy the imaginations of a whole people and just as Ragnar Lothbrok would start charting the new course of the how the Vikings would invade Europe with these large fleets that were not just set up to hit a single monastery or hamlet and go back home, but really occupying forces. Forces that were not just a danger economically, but politically. He did not resign himself to just hitting the Frankish Empire. Now, the Vikings at this time, remember, were hitting all of Europe, especially Western Europe. In 840, just as they 
were starting to make inroads into the Frankish kingdom, the Frankish empire. They were also making inroads into into the English political system, the Irish political system. And just as we originally talked about, the first real Viking raid that set off the Viking Age happened in England. It was not the great raids in Central Europe that would terrify the religious clergymen whose writings have fallen down through the ages to us. For even though Central Europe was definitely, it could be argued, richer than England at this time, though England had just gone through an economic booming period, the British Isles had a disadvantage of while, again, continental Europe was united for the most part under Charlemagne and later Louis the Pious for a good 40 years. During that time, England was split, really by four main English crowns. There was also there was also a Cornish kingdom. The Welsh were free. Ireland was, of course, ruled by many petty clans with a few high clans, high kings who had nominal power over the individual clans of the different individual areas, but they never did get along very well. And if the Vikings had one superpower, really, it wasn't their hit-and-run tactics. It wasn't their long ships that made it to where they could use the rivers of Europe like a highway. The real superpower of the Vikings, it wasn't even their strength. It was their ability to take advantage of political instability, political infighting, really. And that came with the Franks, with them waiting till they had a massive civil war and really turning up the heat on the raids. For the British Isles, it was different. For... As we said, the British Isles were politically different. There was four main kingdoms in England. There was Northumbria in the north, where modern-day York would be. Mercia was the real powerhouse at this time, in the early 800s, to where they controlled most of central England. East Anglia was the far eastern part, think like London area. And then Wessex was the southern west part. And there was other independent kingdoms. Wales was independent. Cornwall still had Cornish rulers. Scotland was still being fought over from the Scots and the Picts. And so there's lots of different political groups just in the British Isles. And this was great for the Vikings. For the Vikings, if there's no great unifying political force that people can rally around, the Vikings can then pick off the weak powers one by one. So the states really need like an emergency crisis manager to deal with this great threat of the Vikings. Someone who's able to pool resources from a large area. So when the Vikings hit, they can do, have a rapid response to it. And in Ireland, this was impossible because there was no centralized state. In England, it's a little different. For, while there was a little bit of a sense of them being English and having a shared identity, really the main hatred at that time... It's something that kind of still exists to this day. To where the North and the South hated each other more than they hated the Vikings. Which meant that each of these individual kingdoms, if faced with a Viking threat, would be on their own. But that isn't to say that they weren't they were completely ineffective. For in eight thirty eight, when Louis the Pious is dealing with the Viking raids in Dorstadt, a Danish fleet will sail into Cornwall and prepare itself to start raiding all of the English countryside. And the Danish fleet was was specifically targeting Wessex. The king of Wessex at that time was a man called Egbert. And he had been trying to conquer the Cornish kingdom for a while now. <laughs> if you look at the map, as he was the, su- the southwesternmost kingdom, 
and Cornwall is the very southwest tip of England. It just makes logical sense that it would be a very secure location if he ever was able to take it. So, the Danes came to Cornwall. Egbert will, of course, find out these these Danes are stationed in Cornwall and use it as another Casas belly to invade them. He'll eventually defeat them in battle, wipe out, wipe out the Danes, push them out of Wessex, conquer the Cornish, and properly kick them out of England. So the state of Western Europe by like 850, it seems pretty stable. The Viking threat is still there, and there is almost a looming sense of danger coming with it. But it's not the end of the world. There's been no massive gains that the Vikings have made. It almost seems like Europe can weather this storm. But as I said, the fleets got larger. The payments demanded of the Europeans swole, respectively. The Vikings will, of course, change their strategy. And their strategy is now not just to raid every once in a while, but to occupy. And they would do this in two different ways. For continental Europe, they'll set up what is called river fleets. So Vikings who will base themselves on individual rivers throughout Europe. And they're able to do this because within these individual rivers, they'll find an island somewhere within it and just park their ships right there. The river will be a natural moat that will protect them from any invaders. They control the sea lanes. And as they have complete naval control, there's no risk of them actually being attacked. But it also strips the defenses of the people they're raiding. It takes away the security of distance that they had before. And it's really interesting when you look at this time period, because you can really see, even though the Vikings were in the individual lists and they weren't one single political entity driven by one single will, Neil Price from Children's Vashenelm explains them kind of like a hydra. I agree with this assessment. To all the individual lists, all are their individual heads, and they all make their individual decisions, you can track where the body of the hydra moves throughout Europe, to where early Viking raids all hit England. Maybe that's where the, the seas naturally took them to begin with. And the start of the Viking Age was such a great success with Lindisfarne that naturally, when they heard about the great riches available to any man with a ship, well, the people before them got their riches in England, so it makes sense that they would go look there first. But by 840-850, the eyes of the Vikings had really shifted to continental Europe. That's where the majority of the large raids were really happened. And there are some theories about why England had this little bit of a rest period. Ireland will also have this rest period, which will be called like the 40 years of peace, to where we don't really see any Viking raids happening for 40 years. And we don't really know why. It could probably be that there was raids happening all the time, and they just weren't big enough to write down. Or maybe they were written down and they weren't able to make it the 1,000 years to us. But by the 840s, 850s, the eyes of the Viking Hydra was firmly fixated on this rotting corpse of an empire that was the Frankish kingdom, and specifically on West Francia, because Charles the Bald had some problems. The first being that no one liked him. And if you're a king and no one likes you, well, there's only one way to make people do what you tell them to. Have a bigger army than they do. So, Charles the Bald had a large personal retinue. But he had lots of different counts throughout his he had lots of different counts throughout his kingdom who didn't weren't that loyal. And these counts kept asking him to build walls around their cities. And being the very much paranoid ruler that he was, he could not allow this to happen. As 
Walls are great at defending cities, but they don't discriminate against that defense. To where, if a count theoretically built a wall in the name of defending against these Viking raids, which is, of course, very rational, if Charles ever made a decree that that count didn't like, well, he could then use that well, then he could then use that wall to defend against Charles. And that couldn't happen. Because while the Vikings raided for a season and left, the Counts didn't rule seasonally. And if they got too much autonomy, they would leave the realm. You can see where the priorities start to get mixed up between defending your people and maintaining the realm. So Charles would not allow his most vulnerable citizens to build walls around their cities because those walls could be used against his army. Instead, he used the advantage that the Romans had with barbarians for years. He would simply pay the Vikings off if they ever came and the rating got too bad. And this works for a while to where he kept paying thousands of pounds every time the Vikings would show up. But again, remember, this is a Hydra and he's paying off one of the heads, but then the body's still fixated on his corpse of an empire. So he had a problem to where he had to keep paying each individual lith off and they would leave and they would promise to fight any Dane that would try to raid him as recompense for the exorbitant amount of money that he's spending on them. But how loyal do you think they were to him? It was for sure their piggy bank, but nothing more. So all through the 850s, 860s, you have examples like in 858, the Danes will set up a camp on the island of Osil in the scene there when King Charles eventually shows up he actually besieges them on this island but he can't do anything so he just surrounds them and they can't leave but he can't attack them though. and the individual ships would be slipping out of the encirclement and raiding the peasants up and down the scene while they wait and Charles's army just sits there and watches Eventually, the peasants in the lower scene will give up on Charles actually defending them. They'll take up arms, and so when the Vikings try to raid them, they'll fight them somewhat successfully. And just like the walls, and just like walls that weren't allowed to be put up because they were a threat to his authority, well, these peasants could not take up arms because there's a threat to him and the nobility's authority. So after they beat off the Vikings, after Charles failed to besiege the Vikings for three months, Charles's armies was eventually put to use on the peasants. The year of 858 had these peasants first being slaughtered by the Vikings, and then when they beat the Vikings off, then by their king. And for anyone living at this time, it must have been so demoralizing. Every time the Vikings came, they raided, and then they were paid to leave. Because, remember, this money is not coming out of Charles's own personal piggy bank. Now, any money that he'll be giving to the Vikings, he'll take from taxes, from the peasants, from the local nobility. So not only is his failure to protect them a risk their lives, it's making them destitute. And most of the time, by the time he pays off these Vikings, they've already raided most of the area they were trying to. So, if you're Charles, what do you do? He eventually will decide to do what his forefathers did. He'll build bridges across these rivers. If you cut off the arteries into the empire, the Vikings can't walk the hundred miles to the heart of it. And they don't bring horses with them, so if they do start to march a long way, well, you can catch them with an army and destroy them. The Vikings, while they will bring some horses with them, they won't ever bring a large enough number to actually contend with any real cavalry detachment. And he'll eventually start realizing in like 862 that he needs to start building fortified bridges like Louis the Pious, like Charlemagne. 
and it worked <laughs> like it did before. These fortified bridges, if manned properly and built in the correct places, could cut off regions from being raided by the Vikings. Those regions could then use their manpower to push closer to the coast and protect other regions. It worked. It was expensive. And while it was good for the citizens, and it may protect the interior of the empire, it wasn't helping reunite the empire that his father, Louis the Pious, and his grandfather, Charlemagne, had. So, even though in 862, he had started, finally, after years of allowing Viking attacks to properly defend his people, the dynastic policy in Lothumbria, which was the Middle Kingdom that, that Lothar had chosen during the Treaty of Verdun, when Lothar's son will eventually die, Charles will then ride into the empty kingdom and take it for himself. He'll do the same with North Italy. Eventually have the Pope crown him King of Rome, just like Charlemagne so many years before. And Charles really had the advantage that he was a lot younger than his brother, so he outlived most of them. And the closer you were to Charlemagne, the more power and prestige you had within this Charlemagnic empire. So just when... Charles is properly dealing with the Vikings. He leaves. He goes and plays politics in the rest of Europe. As his brothers would die, he would go take their realms for himself. He would head down to Italy, of course, and again be crowned the king of Rome. He would claim the imperial mantle for the whole empire for himself. And he would be successful. He eventually did reunite the whole empire together. From the simple fact that he will outlive his brothers will be the only grandson of Charlemagne left standing. And just when you think that maybe this Viking menace can finally be dealt with, when Charles' eyes turn back to the west after so many years looking east, when he has no more rivals, when there's no more pretenders to the throne, when there's no more threats east, and the army starts marching back west home to the undefended coastlines, that's when, when crossing the Alps, Charles the Bald will get sick and die. And just like Charlemagne, just like Louis the Pious, right when he's about to finally put the whole weight of the empire to fixing this issue of Viking raids, he dies. And with him, the promise of peace, the promise of prosperity, the promise of hope will go up in smoke, allowing the Vikings to come back stronger than ever. This isn't about 862, and we've really lingered too long on the Franks. So let's go back to the English. Because in 865, one of the great Viking incursions will take place. Before, of course we were talking, the Viking raids were rather small ordeals. A few ships, really. In 840, you start seeing larger armies, like a hundred ships. So a few thousand Vikings starting to hit places in Francia. You also start getting a wind of armies starting to hit the Irish coastline. But of course these were rather small raids when compared to the hundreds of ships that are hitting like Paris at this time. And we keep getting references to monasteries throughout the British Isles being hit yearly, really. But it, again, it's small. It's seasonal. It's a raid. In 865, during that raiding season, when the Vikings came, they did not come for money, for profit, to take the jewels of the British Isles back to Scandinavia. In 865, they came to stay, and they brought a great army. 
This army has many names. The Great Army, the Great Viking Army. In Anglo-Saxon sources, they'll be called the Great Heathen Army. And people have many different theories why this was the breaking point. Why it was in 865 that Vikings eventually came to conquer England. The most romantic beginning to this new age of Viking activity in England. It begins in Northumberland, a kingdom that will be paramount to the Vikings' activity in England. But in Northumberland, a famous sea king is raiding. When King Alla of Northumbria eventually catches this great pirate leader, this Viking warlord, he'll have him executed by throwing him in a pit of snakes. This may seem normal to kill someone who's been killing your people for, for decades now at this point, but according to the sources, it'll doom his kingdom. The man they capture just happened to be Ragnar Lothbrok, the greatest pirate king in history. And while you're taking him out of the picture, this great warlord, his last words will become a very prophetic phrase. It's said that he said, How the little piggies will grunt when they hear the old boars suffered. As with his last words, he's still threatening this great English Northumbrian king, saying, You may kill me, but when my children hear, they won't be happy. Because while Ragnar was a great warlord in his own right, he had a very pugnacious brood. So he had lots of sons, and they all had their own individual liths, and they all wanted revenge on the man who killed their father. And a lot of modern historians will really dissect the psychology of what these, they think these people were thinking. In the sagas, they make it seem like Ragnar is afraid of his sons, that they'll eventually eclipse his great legacy. And all his sons really want to do that. They want to be greater than their father, who's a legend in his own time. And they seem to all think that the way to start off their own legend is by killing the man who killed the baddest Scandinavian there was. Again, in 865, a large fleet of Viking warships will head towards Northumbria. And they have murder on their mind. And the Viking army is not going to be an army like we would consider the typical Western army setup. To where there's one general, at this time it would have been the king. And then underneath him would be the counts or sub-generals. With there being one brain that is able to move the army effectively throughout the land. The Vikings, again, were using the Lith system to where this army was really composed of oaths of loyalty to individual war leaders. And those war leaders would then make agreements with other ones to make a large mass of men, but they wouldn't be controlled by a single man. As such, even though the kids of Ragnar, like Ivar, the Boneless, Helfdeen, and Uba were all sons of Ragnar, and want this revenge. They were joined by more opportunist Vikings in their own way. As you had Guthrum, Ossetel, Bagskeg, and Enwind. Who were all Viking kings in their own right. And all had their own armies really. That would make up this bigger, larger, great heathen army. Ivar of course is called Ivar the Boneless. And there's many different theories why, like many of the nicknames that historical figures have. The most prominent being that he had some male impotence, but that didn't stop him from conquering. This is what the Chronicles of the Anglo-Saxon has to say about the political situation in Northumbria at the time. Quote, Great civil strife going on in that people, with King Osbert having been disposed in favor of King Alla. So while Northumbria was a large northern kingdom... 
certainly up to the task of fighting and defeating Mercia or Wessex or East Anglia, any of the local England kingdoms from invading its land. In 866, they're going through a hard time. The king that they had recently had had been deposed by a pretender, this King Alla, that would eventually kill Ragnar Lothbrok. And the Vikings will do what they will expertly do for the next 200 years. They use political instability as a way in. So, when King when King Alla eventually takes the throne, before he has time to coalesce the power, the Vikings will invade. And the Siege of York is really interesting because the king of Northumbria, King Alla, would take his forces away from York to gather a large army to fight the Vikings. But while he's gone, the Vikings simply break into York and take it for themselves. And as York was the great city in the north, the real power base of any political leader in that area, this King Alla and his allies would eventually have to take it back. So you end up with King Alla besieging his own capital city, which is defended by which is defended by Vikings. And it goes terribly for the Anglo-Saxons. We don't know exactly what happened, but it's said that both of the Anglo-Saxon kings, both Osberth, as he hadn't been killed, he'd simply been disposed, and King Alla, when they had teamed up to fight the Vikings, both of them will die in this battle. And the political situation in the north will fall apart very quickly. The Vikings were smart. They realized that the Northumbrians wouldn't like them ruling over them directly. So they set up a petty king in their stay. A man called Egbert, who he's very interesting because he was definitely an Anglo-Saxon from his name. So he was a local of the area and he ruled successfully for six years under the Norse thumb. But we find no great uprising against his rule. And he's a very interesting character because from history, you almost see him as a pure opportunist. You almost get the sense that he's like a Philippe Pétain or someone who's willing to work with the invaders to maintain whatever state that he thinks is possible. Later down the road, this Egbert will make decisions that go against the Vikings that make you wonder, was he maybe just biding his time to allow Northumbria to eventually rise again when the Viking armies were away? Or was he simply an opportunist, trying to take any power that he could whenever he could? This was in 866. In 867, their great Viking armies will eventually march down into Mercia, win a few battles, take half the kingdom. In 868, they'll be pushed back to York, will winter there, and have no major expansion. In 869, they'll march down to East Anglia, defeat King Edmund in a battle, and as the legend goes, they'll torture and kill him, making him into a martyr and a saint. In four years... They had conquered most of England. In four years, of the four great English kingdoms, only Wessex stood unmolested. And their king, Athelred I, and his general, his brother, Alfred, they could see the problems coming with the Vikings. In 867, when Mercia was fighting them, the king of Mercia will call for aid from Wessex. And even though Mercia is the great rival to Wessex, Alfred and Alfred would answer the call. In 870 and 871, the Vikings will continue to push south, attacking both what was left of the Mercia territory and starting to push into Wessex. Here, Alfred and Alfred will start fighting a fierce campaign against these Vikings to where you start seeing casualties on both sides really start to mount. And the Viking army, this great heathen army, was a very fluid army. To where, for example, one of the Wessex earls, Aethelwulf, will eventually catch the Viking army with two of its great leaders, two of their kings, and their respective liths away raiding while the rest of the army was held up in a fortress. 
So Aethelwulf, of course, tells the king, Alfred and Alfred, that the Vikings are trapped in this fortress. They'll immediately raise an army and go to help him to try to catch the wolves in the cage. But as soon as they get there, the wolves break out of the cage, charge them, and the West Saxons will suffer a great defeat. The Vikings will, will slaughter them. This will start almost a year of constant campaigning by the great army in Wessex. There is no East Anglia king to help. They can't call on mercy anymore. Northumbria is all but Viking homeland at this point. Wessex stands alone, and after a year of battle, the two brothers, Alfred I, the political leader, the king, the figurehead, and his brother, Alfred, the great general, the only man who had defeated the Vikings at this point, after a year of battles and skirmishes, with losses, but some wins, they killed Bagseg, destroyed many Viking earls, weakened the Viking army, made them suffer losses for the first time. After a year of constant skirmishing, King Athelred I will perish, leading Alfred, 22 years old, to face an army of invaders alone. No great kings for allies, no brother to lean upon, no real army at this point, and he was the last thing standing between Vikings and complete political control over England. He was 22 at this point, and when his brother died, and he would take up the kingship, it said that he wept. He didn't want to be king, for the simple fact that he didn't think he could handle the Vikings by himself. And it's easy to see why. In a matter of five years, the Viking army had basically conquered all of England. All of the entrenched political powers had been killed. All the old men who had enough political connection, all the men who had had time to coalesce power, were dead. And he was all that was left. And there was nowhere else for the Vikings to conquer on England. So he knew the armies would eventually be bearing down on him. And all the last kings have been killed, usually in a gruesome manner. So you can see why, even though some historians argue that the monks that told Alfred's story made him reluctant, made him take up the kingship grudgingly, as that's what a good pious king would do. You can see how, logically, it kind of makes sense that he was a little wary of taking up the crownship. On average, the last few kings in England hadn't fared so well. This great beast, this hydraocracy of the many-headed Viking army, is buried down on Wessex and Alfred. It'll get even worse for Alfred, though, before it gets better. One of the Mercia kings, a man called Kaelwulf II, son of a different Kaelwulf. His family had been involved with different Mercia political dealings for a while, and they had actually used the Viking army to defeat their rival, original king of Mercia. This Viking army, while well, later historians will call it apocalyptic, catastrophic, a complete destruction of the Christian kingdoms. In reality, the people at the time simply saw it as an opportunity. A lot like fire. Dangerous and deadly if used wrong. But a tool. A very valuable, useful tool if used correctly. Many of the medieval rulers tried to use this fire of the Vikings correctly, which is against their opponents, and it worked. Kaelwulf II's Kaelwulf would eventually become king of Mercia, except the year after he became king, the Viking army took half his land. I'm sure there was a growing sense that they were about to take all of it. But once the Viking army took half of Mercia, there's nothing left in the north for them to dilly-dally with. So the armies start heading south and west, where they eventually found and either 
there's a few different ideas of how they defeated Alpharad, whether they just met him in battle and his army eventually crumbled, or they captured him in an unprepared fort to where, where once the Vikings have the fort surrounded, they start to eventually breach the walls, storm the fort. And as they're doing this, Alpharad and his family are climbing out the back window and running to the local marshes just to get away from them. And as the story goes, he'll reach the marshes and he'll just start to wander. He'll find different peasants, different Vikings, and just talk to them and have to fix their problems in a very pious Christian way of fixing it. And he would use his qualities as a pious, humble Christian king to show that he really is worthy of ruling. Now how true this is, we don't know. Maybe, again, the monks who will write his story simply are making him out to be more of a legend than he really was. But what we do know is that in 874, Alfred had no army, he had no allies, and he had a Viking army hunting him, but he survived. This is from the Chronicle, quote, Journeying in difficulties through the woods and the thin fastness with a small force, he had nothing to live on except what he could forge by frequent raids, either secretly or even openly from the pagans as well as from other Christians who had surrendered to the authority of the pagans. End quote. So even the Christians under now the rule of the pagans were fair game because this was a fight for survival. If he fell, the last ruler on England who had any chance of fighting this great Viking army would be dead. It would be done. The conquest of England would be over. But somehow through his own grit and determination, Alfred didn't give up. He didn't retreat. He didn't flee for the safety of the continent like other royal families eventually would. And while this is all happening, you know, the Viking army is not sitting on its heels. It's not sitting on its hands. It's not doing nothing. So, while Alfred is running throughout the different parts of Wessex and the marshes trying to rally any forces he can, the different kings of the Viking army have split to do different things. Guthrum went to establish his own kingdom in East Anglia and really set that up. Ivar and Uba, the two sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, would take a Viking fleet and go down to Devon, eventually raid that. And while they're there, they have a West Saxon force trapped in a fort. And it has all the makings to be like all the other West Saxon forces. They'll eventually get trapped in forts, starved out, and they'll eventually die. Except, according to the monks, this West Saxon force had divine inspiration. To where, when the Viking forces eventually did trap them, instead of just wasting away, they open the gates and sally forth. They beat the Viking army, kill Uba, and steal what's called the Raven Banner. Which, the Raven Banner is a very interesting Viking motif. In Skaldic poetry, there'll be a very famous motif, which is basically just, and they fed the carrion birds. Basically meaning they just slaughtered their opponents. The raven was also seen as a sign of Odin. So just as some Christians will eventually take the cross into battle with them, say God's with us, this raven bird is a sign of Odin's with us. And while we can't know for sure, because I'm sure there was quite a few raven banners, the way the Skalds make it out to be is that there was one and this one raven banner was very important because, as the legend goes, if this raven banner is carried into battle with you, you're for sure going to win, but the man who carries it shall die. It's the classic example of sacrificing your life for the greater cause. And there's quite a few scaldic, there's quite a few poems about Vikings seeing the battles lost, seeing the raven banner on the ground, picking it up, leading the charge that would eventually break the enemy by dying because of it. 
So capturing this Raven banner, if it's as important as it was in that time, as we know it to be, it must have been a real blow to the Viking morale. During this battle, Uba will also die. One of Ragnar's sons, one of the leading proponents of taking all of England. One less head on the hydrocracy, focused on Wessex. But Alpharet is still in the marshes. He will be for really a few years, until about 878. Will he have rallied enough forces to eventually cobble together an army and fight the only real Viking king still in the south, Guthrum, who is now the king of East Anglia? If he loses the battle, there will be no more marshes to hide in. He'll have no more scattered forces to call upon. The idea of a England under an Anglo-Saxon crown will be over, will be done. This is how later monks will say the battle went, quote, Fighting fiercely with a compact shield wall against the entire Danish army, Alfred preserved resolutely for a long time at length. He gained a victory through God's will. He destroyed the Danes with a great slaughter and pursued those who fled as far as the stronghold, hacking them down. End quote. Life of King Alfred by the Bishop Asir. What is now Eddington, Alfred will have his victory. At last, after so many years of slow defeats, will eventually beat the Viking army in the field. We'll trap them in a fortress and eventually make Guthrum sign a peace agreement. And the peace agreement's really interesting because it talks about an aspect of the Vikings that we haven't really focused on yet. This was the peace agreement. Quote, King Alfred raised him from the holy font of baptism, receiving him as his adopted son. The unbinding of the chrism on the eighth day took place on the royal estate called Wedmore. Guthrum remained with the king for twelve nights after he had been baptized, and the king freely bestowed many excellent treasures on him and all his men. End quote. And this is interesting for two really big reasons. The first being the king bestowed many treasures upon him, in the same way a lith leader, a Viking warlord, would bestow presents on his underlings. Alfred defeated this Guthrum and brought him into his own fold. And did so in a way that this Viking warlord would understand that he is now the head leader of what would become a southern alliance between Guthrum's East Anglia and Alfred's Wessex. And what they swore on is a little contentious because the people at the time said they swore on Viking treasure, like silver rings, something that a Viking like Guthrum would know and care about. Later historians and later monks will of course say that they swore on Christian relics. This could partly be some of Guthrum's own propaganda to show that he really was a Christian king all along. But according to the people at that time, they used the Viking way of oath. The other interesting facet of this is that Guthrum was baptized. He was made a Christian. And there's a lot of different theories why the Vikings, when they would eventually settle in England, will rapidly forget the old ways, the way of the pagan religion of their forefathers and quickly adapt an English Christianity. The most common theory that we currently have is it was political. Just like Alfred, when he eventually defeats this Viking war leader, makes him Christian, it's a way of saying that we can now be allies because you are no longer a pagan and demonstrably evil. But this short memory when it comes to, again, paganism is not something just seen with Guthrum and the Vikings with him. It's something that all of the Dane law, which is the area that the Vikings will conquer in England, experience. For specifically Guthrum, 
He, of course, conquered East Anglia. And remember, Edmund, the previous king, was said to be captured by the Vikings and tortured. He became a martyr. Guthrum will then later print coins with both the raven banner for Odin and the cross. A few generations later, the Vikings who control East Anglia will eventually mint coins with the phrase Edmund Rex, King Edmund, in memory of the great Christian martyr of East Anglia. In a few generations of people who were thoroughly pagan, the last pagans in Europe, you know, by many people considered the strongest pagans in all of Europe, who have all become Christian in England. But of course, it's not immediate and everywhere. While it's most prominent in southern England, and this is probably to do with southern England got the least amount of Scandinavian refugees, and the places with the most Scandinavian refugees held on to their pagan ways the longest. So many people... So one of the main aspects of the reason that the Anglo-Saxons weren't actually ever colonized and incorporated into a larger Scandinavia was because when the Scandinavian refugees eventually do reach the Danelaw, they just won't come in the numbers large enough to really affect the general populace. Now, they'll become majorities in many of the city centers, especially in the Kingdom of York, which will be the Viking kingdom around the city of modern-day York. But outside the cities, we don't find very many old Scandinavian relics. Which makes one wonder how much of the country land will the Scandinavians actually control, even at their height. But after Alfred eventually will defeat Guthrum, Guthrum will go back to East Anglia and really start converting all of the Scandinavian rulers that come with him. And while he may have still believed in his heart of heart that Odin would eventually come back and Ragnarok would happen, that Odin would eventually welcome him into the Hall of Valhalla, and that Ragnarok would eventually come when all of your subjects are Christian. It becomes a political necessity to, even if you don't fully believe in Christ, to leave the question open-ended. And a lot of Vikings will eventually take up this stance, because it's pragmatic. We've talked about the, the Vikings throughout their whole entire history so far have been opportunists. They find destabilized regions throughout Europe and attack them when they're at the most vulnerable. And a pragmatic people would understand that religion can be flexible. This flexibility with religion is really something we find with all Viking. The last great leader of the Kingdom of York will be a man called Eric Bloodaxe. And the great scaldic poem that will be written about him shortly after his death, because of course he's at the end of the Viking era, will say, quote, Because he has made many lands red with his sword, said Odin, Hail to you, Eric. Welcome here. Enter the hall, wise king. End quote. The Scaldic poets want Eric the Bloodaxe to be a pagan, to be one of the last pagan leaders in England. But in his life, he would be baptized. Religion is flexible. Power and control was not. The existence of the Dane law is an interesting facet in the Viking Age because it really changed and neutered the one superpower the Vikings had. This whole entire time that they've been raiding, their advantage was their speed. They would be able to get in, take what they want, and leave. Or if there was a large army bearing down on them, they could run away. They could take the fights they want and not run away from the fights that are too numerically tilted in the enemy's favor, but simply find somewhere else to loot and pillage. The creation of this day in law in the Viking kingdoms in England means that they don't have any homeland to retreat to again. 
The Viking leaders and the Viking armies and the Scandinavian settlers who will settle down in England will no longer have an ocean protecting them from the people they're taking stuff from. No longer will armies have to build ships if they want to attack the Viking homeland. Now they can simply walk to it. Alfred's descendants will be celebrated as the reconquerors of England, the people who eventually will push all of the Scandinavians out of England. But they will have to build no ships. The Vikings had an advantage when the great heathen army, the great pagan army, the great army landed. England wasn't prepared for them, and they blitzed through it. Now, they're bogged down in settlement. This will give enough time for, again, Wessex to start chipping away at the Danelaw ever so slowly. Where Alfred's son, Edmund, will become king of Wessex. And his daughter, he'll marry into the kingdom of Mercia. And eventually they'll work together to start pushing against the Vikings, against the Danelaw. Through political marriage and conquest, by the time of Edmund's death, only the kingdom of York of all the Danelaw will remain. The Vikings were great in warfare. They were geniuses at political backstabbing, but they were poor at unifying. And this has a lot to do with the way that all Viking armies and countries of that time were configured, being the Lith system. It didn't breed unity, it bred disunity. So when the Vikings of York see the Vikings in East Anglia getting attacked by Edmund, they don't send an army to help because in their mind, that's just one Viking less to deal with. In their mind, the great threat is another Viking, not some upstart king in Wessex whose family line is barely hanging on. So when this Wessex king takes down your rival, very quickly the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. And the Vikings' enemies, their whole entire history, tended to be more so themselves than any foreign invader. It isn't until much later, in 10th, 11th centuries, that you eventually see monarchy start to take hold of the Scandinavian countries, and the monarchs actually being able to enforce their will on the people. That's when you start seeing the really large Viking armies. But monarchism would only really be successful through the church as it became a unifying force for the political leaders in Scandinavia. So it wasn't until the Norse people took up the cross that they were able to really form the large armies that would plague the later half of the Viking era. But now that we have a good grasp on England, it's important that we go back to continental Europe to talk about, if not the most famous Viking raid, a top three raid. And it happened on a, a little city that, while it was on the rise politically and economically, was not seen as nearly as important as it would be today. A little town on the Seine River, on an island in that river, called Paris. And in 885, a Viking fleet, led by a man called Sigurd, a Viking warlord, would sail down the Seine and reach this island city of Paris. The most important aspect of Paris, though was it was defensible. When the earlier Frankish leaders would build the fortified bridges, they built one of the fortified bridges on Paris. So while Paris sat in the middle of an island, with the scene split, it had an east and a west bridge that made it to where the Vikings could not get past this city and raid further up the scene. This made Paris really the last fallback line and the defenses for Central Europe against Viking raids. The two bridges, as long as they were held, meant that no longships could actually reach the very heart of Central Europe. 
all the most fertile land, the most profitable lands at this time. Areas like Burgundy hadn't been hit by Vikings before. At least not nearly in the same apocalyptic way that the coast had. So it had continued to prosper throughout the 800s. Much of the actual royal estates of the great families of the French Empire were actually protected by this bridge because they were farther inland. Paris was thus a red line in defense against the Vikings. If it fell, well, it's another piece of the dominoes for the Viking. If not invasion in Central Europe, then the pillaging of Central Europe. Not quite a conquest, but if you're able to take a city like Paris, I'm sure the Viking Lith leaders probably had ideas of conquest, probably start to rattle around in their brain. This is in 885, remember. And so the great heathen army had already taken the Danelaw from the English. I'm sure other great Vikings also wanted territory from themselves. And if England is off the table because other Vikings control it, well then central France starts to look very appetizing. Probably the most important facet of this raid though actually doesn't have much to do with the Vikings, but is that we have an actual first-hand account of what happened. It's one of really the only raids in Viking history that we have documentation about what happened, not someone from after the fact or a monk explaining the horrors that happened thousands of miles away from him, but an actual first-hand account in history that's worth more than gold. The man writing is called Abbo. He was a monk. He's based in a monastery within Paris, and he'll write a Latin poem about this great raid. And it's one of the really great things about this raid, the Siege of Paris in the 85, because the reason he wrote it was the siege was so miraculous to him and everyone alive that it's almost like, it's like their Alamo, to where a small group of true believers were able to hold off the great horde of invaders. But instead of just being political invaders or people coming just to change the government, you have the extra spice, you have somewhat religious conflict. The two great leaders of the siege will be the bishop and the count, because those were the two main areas of political power in medieval Europe. The bishop rallied the soldiers, and the count led them. But it's also telling that Abbo decided to write about this Viking raid because of how miraculous it was. The only reason he was able to do that was because, spoiler alert, this raid will fail. Most Viking raids didn't. According to Abbo, 700 Viking ships will sail up the scene in 885, clogging the waterways with their boats. 700. And according to his estimate, there was 40,000 Viking raiders attacking Paris at once. And while historians now universally agree that Abbo had a problem with exaggerating, as again, we don't see those numbers until late into the Viking Age, so we're talking like late 900s, early 1000s. There were certainly hundreds of Viking ships Ivo says that they would look out onto the river and not be able to see it. It was so clogged with Viking vessels. And like all medieval cities at that time, there was really two powers within the city. The first being the Count, a man called Otto, who was the real political power. The other being the Bishop, a man called Goslin, who was the religious leader. And as medieval life was centered on those two institutions, they were the two leaders of the city. So when the Viking, so when the Viking lith leader Sigurd, gets to Paris and he sees it blocked in front of him. He goes to these leaders and he says this, quote, O Goslin, show mercy to yourself and the flock given you, that you may come not to ruin. Grant our plea, we ask you. Give us your consent that we go on our way, go beyond this city. Nothing in it shall we touch, 
but shall preserve and safeguard all the honors that belong to you and Otto, who is the noblest of all counts and who is the future king. Guarding in this city, we shall become the kingdom's rampart. End quote. Sigurd is showing Otto a way to political power. That he would be seen as the savior of Paris, a man who didn't allow the Vikings to raid it if he just allowed them to continue on the way of the scene. The other fact being that if you trust the Vikings were as devious as they seem, they probably knew that they would be raiding Otto's enemies. Now, he, comes, he came from a good family, a good Frankish noble house, and so he rubbed shoulders with the elite. But he was on the level of the royal family, that's for sure. And if the Vikings were allowed to simply pass through Paris, they would be raiding, they'd be raiding the power bases of Otto's enemies. Of the people Otto would have to fight for political power. The Vikings see this. Sigurd's looking for a weakness that he can drive a knife into and twist. Unfortunately for the Vikings, they weren't talking to simply a noble, but a noble man. They also prey on Goslin's love of his people, of his flock. If he simply allows the Vikings to pass, none of his children that he has to shepherd to heaven will die in their young age. He simply has to let the Vikings through to attack people that he doesn't know, he doesn't love, and none of the people he does love have to die. It's easy for any of us to make the hard decision centuries away to understand the bigger picture that if he allows the Vikings through, people will still die, and possibly even more people than if they fight the Vikings. It's not your friends you're giving up. It's not your family that you're forcing to go through a Viking siege with the most likely outcome being they're all slaughtered. It's an easy decision from distance. It's a hard one in real life. These Vikings knew where to apply the pressure to get what they wanted. When you're sitting there on the ramparts of Paris, and you see a Viking force maybe ten times what you currently have, that little voice in the back of your head probably starts asking the questions. Can we even win this? If we're going to lose and die anyway... Would it not be easier just to let these Vikings pass? But this is what Goslin has to say back to Sigurd. Quote, By our King Charles have we been given this city to guard. By him, whose majestic realm spreads almost the whole earth. By the Lord's will and who is king and master of the mighty, the realm must not suffer the destruction of this city. But rather, this city must save the realm and preserve the peace. Now if by chance these walls were entrusted to you, as they are to us, and you asked to do... All that you have asked of us, would you deem it right and agree? Siegfried said, By my honor, rather my head was lopped off by a sword and thrown to the dogs. However, if you do not agree to my request, we shall have our siege engines at daybreak hurl poison starts at you. With sunset, you shall know hunger's curse. It shall go on for years. End quote. That's from the Nirmal Das translation. In this back and forth, you really get a sense of who these Vikings were. They were hard men. Men who were used to getting what they wanted. Men who knew how to prey on the weaknesses of others. But there was also a sense of duty to them. Sigurd says that if he's in the bishop's shoes, he would not give up the city either. And you get a sense of almost respect. He finally found some Frankish leader. Got a backbone. It's it. The honor, the duty, the oaths, all the things that the Vikings built their society on. And something they'll say the Southerners don't have. They finally found a man who did. Someone who wasn't willing to sell his men, his people. 
for simple gold and safety. But even with this nod of the head and respect to the Parisians, still came the promise of death. Remember, his last words were, you'll be hungry for years. They may have made the right decision, but it would not keep them from the consequences. The other aspect of this is, it's one of the few times that we get to see the Vikings actually participate in siege warfare. How much of this is they didn't have to a lot of the times, because again, many of the areas they were raiding didn't have walls. And the few times that we do see them participate in siege warfare, especially in England, when they'll trap Anglo-Saxon forces in different forts, a lot of times they'll just starve those people out. But in this siege in particular, it's said that they had siege equipment with them. Avo says as soon as Sigurd goes back to his men, the next day, they start hurling stones at the Paris defenders. So that means that the Vikings brought siege equipment with them, like they knew this was a possibility. But we don't really see, but we don't have that many examples of them truly using this siege equipment. And if the number Abo gives for the attackers versus the defenders are anywhere near to being close, we can see that they may not have been that good at it. <laughs> it was a new type of warfare that they weren't yet used to. This is how Abo describes the first real combat to be, quote, The Grim Ones, which is what he calls the Vikings. The Grim Ones were a thousand times forty. Or 40,000. They sent fresh troops dashing to the tower. This being the northernmost tower. Oh most horrible sight. They fought fiercely. A great quakening clamor arose. It could be heard on both sides. A mighty chorus of voices. Filled the air as hurling rocks thudded against painted shields. These shields let forth groans and helmets clattered as swift arrows fell. Some horsemen returned from their pillaging rode forward to join the fight at the tower. Well rested and fed they were. But many among them had no chance to hurtle their stones, for they were struck down and killed, and the rest ran back to their ships, before drawing their last anguished breath. The dying Danes tore at their hair and shed tears. End quote. This is the type of combat that would happen for the next few months. And the Vikings would not launch assaults every single day, probably because when they did launch assaults, according to Abo, they would get slaughtered. So, so they changed their tactics. Instead of trying to directly defeat Paris, they would raid the countryside along Paris. They had some horsemen with them, apparently. They could ride out into the countryside and raid the peasants for food because they didn't bring food with them, so they had to get it from somewhere. This is how Abo describes the average raid happening from the Danes. Quote, The Danes assembled that they might set up an encampment, fashioning stakes, gathering stones and earth to pile up in one heap. Then the cruel ones, both on horseback and foot, overran the hills, the fields, the forest, open pastures, and the villages. All infant boys and girls, youths, and even those hoary with age, the father and the sons, even mothers, they killed them all. They slaughtered the husband before the very eyes of his wife. Before the eyes of the husbands, the wife fell prey to carnage. The children perished right before the eyes of their parents. The bondsmen were set free, while the freeman was made a bondsman. The slave was made the master, and the master became the slave. But the wine grower and the farmer, together with the vineyards and the fields, suffered the pitless weight of death. Then did the land of the Franks no grief, end quote. And all we have to keep in mind that Abo hated these people, and so any history he writes about them was probably tainted with his own personal judgment. We find quite a few scaldic poems of Vikings celebrating these actions that Abo seems to hate, just from the other viewpoint. These events probably did happen throughout the Frankish countryside. And it's one of the many reasons that the Frankish people started to hate their rulers. Because while the Frankish kings 
had a long history of trying to deal with the large politics of Europe instead of protecting their people from the marauding Vikings that were destroying them. They would take their armies to make a claim for political aspiration. And the Siege of Paris really broke the camel's back when it comes to how far the Frankish peasants and the Frankish local nobility were willing to take from their imperial masters. If you ever want to read about what an ancient battle would have been like, I highly recommend reading about Abu's account of Paris in 885. I see so colorful, and it's such a romantic battle. For example, after Otto rallies the defenders to defeat the Danish first attack, Abu will follow him in the night, how he goes to the different exhausted defenders and cheers them up. He always is rushing to where the Danes are attacking. He's in the thick of the battle the whole entire time. Or how even the bishop, he'll eventually take up the cross and the sword and go plant it on top of the tower. Thus making this not just a defense of their lives, but a defense of their religion. And if a man who has sworn to never shed blood is on the front lines in the thick of the melee, fighting for his god, that has to change something inside you. Make you realize that you're not just fighting for your life, you're fighting for something bigger. Your afterlife, your whole people. Everything that your society is built on. There's levels to everything. And while fighting for your life is up there for how hard you would fight. Fighting for everything you love. Everything you believe in. And maybe even becoming a martyr someday. Well that just may be a level above that. No longer is this just a siege. It's the last battle. Giving off vibes of Armageddon coming down on these Parisians. Or when the Danes will be attacking. You'll have defenders launch spears at them, that when a spear will actually pierce more than one Dane together, you'll get quips like, quote, With a single spear, he pierced seven Danes all at once, and in jest he said to his own, Take them to the kitchen. End quote. I mean, that line is straight out of a modern-day Hollywood blockbuster. Something that we would see in, like, Lord of the Rings. At one time, one of these towers will be under siege, and they'll run out of things to throw at the Danes. So they'll throw a giant wheel, like a wagon wheel down. <laughs> and Abba will explain how every spoke of the wheel hit a different Dane, killing seven at once. I mean, it's just fantastic. I can, I can see it so picture perfect in my head of just the Parisians running it together with a wheel and heaving it off the side of this tower. Only to have it come down and hit seven Vikings perfectly and they all flail wildly, cut back to the Parisians smiling laughing. It's a fantastic account and a real rarity in the time. But as the siege starts to drag on, fortunately for the Vikings, there would be a large rain within two months of the siege beginning. And during this large rain, the waters of the scene would flood, causing the northern bridge, which was made out of wood, to eventually collapse, trapping 12 defenders and the now separated northern tower. Those 12 defenders would be asked to surrender to the Vikings. They would say no would be killed one by one. It's at this time in the siege that Otto, the Count of Paris, realizes that they really need help if they're going to actually resist the Vikings. Sigurd has given no reason for the Parisian defenders to think that he wouldn't sit it out for the long haul, and they knew that their king, a man called Charles the Fat, the great-grandson of Charlemagne and son of Louis the German, they knew that Charles the Fat would not come to save him. He, like Charles the Bald before him, was not known for prioritizing the safety of his subjects. So, Otto will eventually have to escape this Viking blockade to find help. So in the cover of night, 
They take what little horses they have left, and he leaves the siege. He'll go to Italy and eventually find Charles the Fat and convince him that he has to save Paris. He has to bring the Imperial Army and relieve Paris from these Vikings. Otto will then ride back to Paris with Charles the Fat bringing the army behind him. To where Otto, then, when he sees the picket lines from the Vikings, will charge through them and make it back to the besieged defenders. He'll be the hero of Paris. The Imperial Army will eventually reach Paris, break the Viking camp, trap them on a hill outside of Paris. At this time, Sigurd had left with some of the Vikings to go raid others, and all was left was a man called Rollo, and the Vikings that followed him. They finally had the Vikings trapped on a hill, but they couldn't run. The Imperial Army outnumbered them by quite a significant margin. It should be an easy battle. But Charles the Fat had a problem, where he had some disloyal counts in Burgundy that he had to teach a lesson. And so he sees the opportunity. He can pay these Vikings to go raid the counts that were being disobedient, punish them. So with Rollo trapped on this hill outside of Paris... Charles the Fat will give him 700 pounds of silver and let him through the scene. You have to think about what those Parisian defenders probably were thinking. As the river that they worked so hard to block had hundreds of Viking ships slowly move past them. That breaks your spirit. Finally, someone had defeated the Vikings. Finally, someone had protected those further inland. And Charles the Fat got there and just lets the Vikings through. Even gives him a little payday, probably from the taxes he'll take from the Parisians. Not so different from the Charles of 845. This will be what many consider to be his downfall. After this, he can't really say that he's the protector of the people. He loses all political support that he had. And Otto, the Count, would eventually go on to become the, ki- become the king of West Francia. But the most important person of this story is not any of the Frankish nobility because while they would go on to be the kings of continental europe and set up dynasties for the next few hundred years uh, the man who had the most effect on the story that we're currently talking about is rollo that viking war leader the man who was instrumental in the raid of paris who would be the one later to carry out charles's fats the plan of retribution against his disloyal vassals rollo really used this paris expedition to supercharge his viking career But he'd have to wait for a few years because once Charles the Fat died, the Frankish nobility got together and they elected Otto, the Count of Paris, to be the next king of West Francia. And he was staunchly anti-Viking in all things. For what we can tell, he would have been a great leader. Except he had the same problem that every Frankish king has had and will have for hundreds of years. Disloyal vassals. His vassals' grievances with him mostly lagged with his lineage. That being, while his father, Robert the Strong, was a famous count, famous for defending the Franks against the Bretons and the Vikings. The rival claim was a man called Charles the Simple, the title simple just meaning, like, honest, someone who doesn't play the political game. And that man was a part of the Carolingian dynasty. And the Frankish nobility will always be known for being rather conservative in how they view in almost all things. So, when it was between an upstart new dynasty, or a Carolingian successor, many of the counts would choose the Carolingian. This would lead to another Frankish civil war. It would start in 893 and rage on for four years until 897 and Otto finally becomes king of West Francia. 
with no claimants to the throne besides him. And he finally has time to deal with the Viking menace. But unfortunately, the next year, in 898, he'll die. And Charles the Simple will become king and have the same problem that the king of the Franks have had for really the past 100 years. How do you stop the Vikings? And it's gotten worse for him because the Viking armies that are based on the different rivers, like the army of the Seine, have gotten to the point where they no longer leave to go back to Scandinavia during the, during the winter and the summer. Now, they just camp out at the mouth of the river and raid around there in the winter and summer. And when it's the spring and the fall, you know, the good raiding season, they will sail up that river to find the more lucrative lands upstream. So Charles the Simple has a problem to where the scene is becoming more and more important as it's the base of where his and most of the imperial authority comes from because that's where most of the imperial land was. So how do you curtail these Viking raiders? I'm sure he opened up the history books. They've already tried building the fortified bridges and while that works, you just get more siege of Paris's and that's more Frankish lives you'll have to waste protecting against these Vikings. By this time, he'll have seen in England that Alfred, what he did was he simply made the Vikings Christian and then allied them to defeat other Vikings with Guthrum and the East Anglians. You really just need to buy time. The Vikings are like lightning to where when they hit you, it's loud and fast and there's nothing you can do. They're not good at sustained combat or sustained occupation. So Charles the Simple gets an idea. He goes to the biggest, baddest Viking lit leader there is currently. That being Rollo, the man who used the Siege of Paris as a springboard to his Viking career. And he comes with him with an offer. He doesn't just get to raid the people at the mouth of the scene yearly. He gets to tax them. And the great thing about taxes is you get to be there year-round legally, decide how much the peasants give you, and you don't even have the threat of dying for it. It's all legal. So Rollo and some of his best warriors decide to settle down in an area that we now call Normandy. It gets that name for being the land of the Normans, the Northmen. And even though most Vikings only used a single-edged sword, this deal is more like a double-edged sword. As well, it does stop most Viking raids from coming up the scene. Rollo and his later descendants will keep the Viking streak of independence. They're never good vassals. They always want more land, more stuff. This has mostly to do with the way that the Vikings got people to do what they wanted. They believed much more in the carrot than the stick when it came to their own followers, to where within the Liths, it was all voluntary to follow an individual leader. You could really leave at any time, as all you'd be giving up would be the future promises of gifts that the leader would give to you. So if you thought a leader was doing well, and you thought he had promise about the future decisions that he would make, you would stay with him. A little bit like stocks, you know, buy low, sell high. It's why in history, a lot of times we'll see these Vikings just get on a roll. They'll make one good raid or one good battle, and then more and more people start coming to their banners. In the same way, if one of the Viking war leaders starts backsliding, starts losing land, he can fall off a cliff pretty quickly, go bankrupt. If he had no more gold rings to give, he would have no more followers. And this worked for Rollo, because Rollo started low, and him and his most loyal followers will eventually cash in with a duchy in France. But it caused a problem for Charles the Simple, as Rollo kept needing more and more stuff because he followed the old Norse way of voluntary vassalship. And that works great when the times are good and you can make money by raiding others. You simply have to administrate. It's harder to properly reward your followers. So Rollo 
kept asking for more and more, and kept taking little pieces from those around him, disregarding Charles the Simple's orders that he stays in the area he was originally given. And this streak would last through generations. His All his descendants will have it. To where his son, William Longsword, will put an end to the voluntary vassalship of his vassals. He'll maintain the independent streak that his father was so known for. And the Normans had lots of advantages against their Frankish counterparts. The first and probably the most forefront being they had allies outside of France. When they needed mercenaries to fight their wars, they could always turn to other Norse. And they would keep this North flair. In fact, William Longsword's son, a man called Richard in the Frankish Chronicles, will be called Piraterum Dukes, or the Pirate Leader. So even though there was large Christianization happening to the Normans, obviously to the native Franks, they were still pirates, Vikings. The other advantage that being attached to the north of the world at this time was, was you were a part of the North Trading Empire. And that, well, Vikings certainly were pirates through and through. They were also traders. Well, they did raid quite a bit when they weren't raiding. Well, they had to use their ships for something, and trading is the most obvious answer. We talked about it in the first episode, but in fact, most Scandinavian ships were not the long ships that we know and love today, as those were the warships. Most were a more simple, smaller, just merchant vessel used to carry goods and people. So, when Normandy is taken over by the Normans, it starts to boom economically as it becomes tied into the greater trade empire that is really starting to form in the north, with the jewel of this empire, of course, being York, up in England. By 910, the Danelaw had really started to solidify, and most of the people at that time were used to being under a Scandinavian ruler, a pagan ruler. Uh, really not pagan. Again, religion is flexible, so while they could have been pagan, a lot of the rulers were both pagan and Christian. <laughs> In fact, Rollo, the founder of Normandy, shortly before he died, he actually gave 100 pounds of gold to local Christian churches to make sure, you know, he's all good with the big man upstairs. And then once he had done that, he beheaded 100 Christians for Odin. If you aren't sure what the correct answer is, gotta play both sides. But by 910, the Lot has started to be encroached upon by the armies of Edward the Elder, the son of Alfred the Great, as he'd be known later. And the one problem that the leaders of the Danelaw, and especially the leaders of the Kingdom of York had, is as there was no real monarchist tradition within the Scandinavian society, many of the Viking leaders were leaders simply because they were the strongest, or they had the most power at that time. And while that may seem more amicable to us, you know, more fair, you had the problem to where the leadership was always up for grabs, so there was a lot of backstabbing. Wessex, and at this time Edward the Elder, didn't really even have to invade with armies all the time. They could just sit there and let the Scandinavians eat themselves. The Hydra that is the Vikings is almost undefeatable when all heads are working in the same direction. But give it enough time, it'll get hungry and eat itself. And eat itself. And through the early 900s to like 927, the York, Kingdom of York, will go through many kings. Really just whatever Viking had the strongest army at that time, with Wessex and Mercia chipping away at the Danelaw, slowly, until eventually, Edward the Elder's son, now the grandson of Alfred, Athelstan, will eventually seize York and kick the Vikings out for good in 927. 
937, a coalition of Constantine II of Scotland, Olaf Guthfurthsun, and Owen of Strathclyde invaded England again to retake York and push the English back down to southern England. There'll be a very important battle that happens. I'll just let the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle say what happened. And you can tell that the people in that time realized how important this battle was because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is one of the main sources I've been using, is very dry. Here are the years from 932 to 935, quote. This year, Burristan was invested Bishop of Winchester on the fourth day before the Catalans of June, and he held the bishopric for two years and a half, A.D. 933. This year, died Bishop Frithstan, and Edwin the Aetheling was drowned in the sea, A.D. 934. This year went King Athelstan into Scotland, both with a land force and a naval armament, and laid waste a great part of it, and Bishop Burstan died at Winchester at the Feast of All Saints. You can see kind of why Constantine II of Scotland might have been trying to help the Vikings. 935. This year, Bishop Elfhe took the Bishopric of Winchester, and you can see how it's very dry. And then you get to AD 938, where you get, quote, here Athelstan, king of the Earls of Lord, rewarder of heroes, and his brother Eke, Edmund Atheling, elder of the ancient race, slew in the fight with the edge of their swords, the foe Abrumby. The sons of Edward, their board walls clove, hewed through banners with the wrecks of their hammers. So were they taught by kindred zeal that they were camped oft against any robber their land should defend, their hordes and homes. Pursuing fell the Scottish clans, the men of the fleet in numbers fell, midst the din of the field and the warriors swayed, since the sun was in the morning tide, gigantic light, glad over grounds, God's candles bright, eternal Lord, till the noble creature sat in the western main, there lay many in northern heroes under the shadow of arrows, shot over shields, and Scotland's boast. A Scythian race, the mighty seed of man. End quote. A very dry, historic document writes how joyous the day was that finally England was made whole. The Vikings and the Scottish were sent packing, and according to the monks, God had won. This will be the beginning of a unified England. And if you start to pick up the pieces and connect the dots, you see that the Vikings were really influential in the founding of England, of France, of Germany. A lot of the really powerful countries that will crop up throughout Europe, especially Western Europe, will find intertwined throughout their foundings stories about the need to unify or to separate or to make their own identity because the Vikings put pressure on them. Wherever the Vikings sailed, change happened, usually rapidly. By the mid-900s, the Viking Age is starting to really wind down. That has a lot to do with the unification of England. No longer is there a political turbulence that the Vikings could use to their own advantage. Down in continental Europe, there was actually the opposite effect where while the French Civil Wars had been the perfect opportunity for them to raid uncontested, the Carlaginian Empire at this point is almost completely collapsed. And any unified central power that would be a good, strong Frank Frankish king well, those times are over, and you have lots of very powerful counts and dukes. But no longer is some emperor only focused on the big picture. No longer is some emperor only focused on making sure his counts don't revolt against him and forcing them to not build any walls. Now these counts are responsible for their own protection of their own local lands, so they will actually build walls. 
No longer will the Vikings have any free raids of undefended farmlands and monasteries. They can no longer go and take the wealth from people who are undefended, because now these counts will need the wealth of their people to fund their own armies. They'll still fight wars against each other, but having a single city hit is much more costly if it's one out of the ten cities you own, instead of one out of the hundreds. Once Athelstan, the grandson of Alfred the Great, eventually does throw the last remnants of the great heathen army into the sea, completely control all of the Danelaw, and incorporate the Kingdom of York into the greater Wessex, well, really, empire at this point. The Vikings will always try to take it back. There's a sense within the Norse that they still really own the Kingdom of York. That England is still theirs for the taking if they can just raise a large enough army and win it. Their ancestors almost did. They only had one more kingdom to conquer before the all of England was controlled by a Scandinavian, not Anglo-Saxon. But by the 950s, it almost looked like this Scandinavian age was at an end. No longer was there any Norse ruling in England. The different waterways throughout Europe had been closed off. Much of the wealth that the Vikings acquired easily now came the cost of blood they didn't have. Lots of the different heads of the Hydra have been cut off, and it seems to be that the body of this beast is finally dying. As more and more heads and more and more liths die, it just means that the ones that survive get more and more power. In 958, the political changes that have been ravaging all of Europe at this point finally hit Scandinavia. And they hit it in the Kingdom of Denmark. Really the leader when it comes to Viking raids, especially on what would be modern day France today. Well, for a long time, historians believe that the Danish hit the Frankish kingdoms and the Norwegians hit the English kingdoms. Modern day forensics has thrown a wrench in that theory. And it was really the armies were much more mixed than we used to believe. But as the different waterways of Europe are starting to close off to the Vikings and they have less room for expansion, you start seeing the powerful political leaders and for the Norse turn inward and realize that the main issue that they have is a lack of authority. They're going to England and seeing these powerful kings being able to do really whatever they want. There are some checks and balances, but really authority is all vested in the king. Same thing is happening in Central Europe to an extent. And then they go back home and they see the Lith system still in place where their vassals, while they are underneath the king, remember it's a voluntary service. Kings hate that. In 865, a king of Denmark called Harold Bluetooth would make the monumentous decision to convert to Christianity. Other Vikings, of course, had become Christian long before this, especially the ones who ended up in England or France. He was the first Norse who was still in Scandinavia with real political power that made this decision and stuck to it. Others had dabbled, but when they found that being Christian in a pagan land made it much harder for them to achieve political power, a lot of times they would switch back to paganism. Religion can be flexible. To just as the Christians hated the pagans, but they went against God. That's one of the strongest rebukes you could have against you. The pagans believed the same thing as the Christians, to where they didn't believe in the correct gods. So by working with them, you could be putting at risk your eternal salvation. Well, not eternal in Ragnarok's case. You could be missing the final great battle, more like it. But Harold Bluetooth is important because he was the first Danish king to really focus on unifying his realm under a single kingdom. And to do this, he became Christian. Maybe he actually believed or maybe he saw that the southern kings were able to use the church to maintain their power. We'll never know. But looking at the past history of the Vikings and the history of the Vikings that came after him, his close family, 
it's a safer bet to bet on the second one. Harold Bluetooth would be successful in his uniting of the different Danish chieftains, though. It's one of the reasons why Bluetooth is named after him. Bluetooth was originally created to unite all the different forms of communication between different electronic devices. Harold Bluetooth was the first unifier of Denmark, early Voss Scandinavia. And while his reign might have ended poorly because a whole bunch of disgruntled pagans eventually cooed him, his son Sven Forkbeard would eventually become king of Denmark using these disgruntled pagans. And while England became unified and then eventually became weak through poor leaders, Scandinavia used this time to reorder the household to create actual good armies again that no longer have the disadvantage of disunity and get prepared for one last great hurrah. Eventually a man called Athelried will take control of England and, and he's just the opportunity that the Vikings needed to surge back for Athelried will later get the name Athelried the Unready. And while the name Unready really is just talking about that he didn't listen to his advisors, there's some good poetic irony in that it also fits that he wasn't ready for the storm that was about to hit him. By the 980s, you start to see small Viking raids start to pop up again. Well, historians now theorize that like little Viking raids like this were happening throughout all the past 200 years at this point. They just weren't written down like the big ones. It is telling that we start hearing about the little ones again. So it makes it seem like by the 950s, the Viking raids had really fallen off a cliff. No longer were the whole entire coastline of the British Isles and France terrorized. There would also be small raids through Germany that would get Harold Bluetooth in trouble, but nothing major. In the night, any Southampton will be hit, and the Viking wave, this Viking menace, will start to pick up again, slowly but surely. More and more raids start to register all throughout England, and you can gotta get a feeling that this pressure that has been on England for now centuries is coming back. In 991, a man called Olaf. Trigvason will land in England with 93 ships. So a few thousand men. Athelried will send his Earl Baratnoth with tribute to pay the Vikings off. His Earl will refuse this dishonorable act. Not to pay the Vikings off before even giving the battle. How could you call yourself king if you do that? So this Earl will meet the Vikings in battle. Leading to one of the few early medieval well, not exactly historic, close to historic account of a, what a battle would be like. In the poem, The Battle of Maldon, in it you get lines like, quote, Then the slaughter wolves waited, caring not for the water, the Viking armies westward across the Ponte, across the bright waters, carrying their board shields, sailing men to the shore, bearing yellow linen, there they stood against this ferocious one. But Rottenoth and his warriors, he ordered them to form a shield wall with their shields and for the army to hold fast against their foes. Then the fighting was near, glory in battle, the time was coming, that the fated men must fall there. End quote. Fatalism was not just the domain of the Norse. In a battle between the two shield walls, it's really an even affair until one of the walls breaks. That's when the real killing is done. There's something about infantry combat, hand-to-hand -hand combat, that is universal. Since the time of the hoplites and their shield walls, as long as the man next to you doesn't run, you have a good shot at, while not living, at least winning the battle. But as soon as the man next to you breaks, it becomes like an avalanche and it can't be stopped. As more and more men peel off the shield wall, 
the battle will eventually become hopeless. That's why the leaders being at the front were so important, because as long as the leader didn't run, you know that he at least thought the battle was winnable. But in this battle, Byratnoth unfortunately died early in the battle, meaning that when all his men saw that their leader was dead, the fear starts to creep into the back of their minds when they're seeing these Vikings, men who are still more tribal than they are, because these probably would have been levies at this point, still hold their wall and still have their leader, men will start to flee slowly. And what the poem of the Battle of Maldon is really about is the Earl's household talking to each other about the oaths that they swore to him, how they'll defend his body, even in death, before running. And they all go through and say their vows and why they won't flee. And, well, this is how the poem has the battle ending. Quote, There was a crashing of shields. Seafarers came forth and raged in the fight. The spear often went through the life houses of the faded. Then Wystan went forth, Thurston's son. He fought against the warriors. He was in the press, the killer of three of them, before Wiglin's son lay dead among the slain. There was a stern moot there. They stood fast, warriors in the warfare, warriors perishing, warriors wearied by wounds. The slain fell to the earth. End quote. The Anglo-Saxons will lose this battle. And with it, the closing door of the Viking Age gets an axe stuck in it. And these Norse won't go out quietly. No, there's still treasure to be had. There's still glory to be won. Now Thorid will have to pay 10,000 pounds of silver, showing there's still Dane Geld to win. In the year 1000, Sven Forkbeard and the man who had just won this Battle of Maldon, Olaf Tryggvason, have finally fought over who was the real king of Norway. By this time, Sven Forkbeard won, unifying the kingdoms of Denmark and Norway under one single person. In 1002, Sven Forkbeard will fully turn now both the kingdom of Denmark and Norway onto England and Athelried's reign. In response, Athelried will make a very contentious order that even today many people argue he was actually carried out or why he made this order. In 1002, he ordered that any Dane in England needs to be killed. He suspected them for working with the Vikings to destabilize his realm. This is what John Hayward has to say about this in The Northmen. Quote, Aethelried referred to the massacre in the Charter at 1004, to which he explained that the Church of St. Fridswide needed to rebuild because the local Danes, now quoting Aethelried, quote, Striving to escape death, entered this sanctuary of Christ, having broken down the doors and bolts, and resolved to make a refuge and defense for themselves, therein against the people of the town and the suburbs. But when all the people, in pursuit, strove, forced by necessity, to drive them out, and could not, they set fire to the planks and burned, as it seemed, the church with its ornaments and books, end quote. The Danes, which we now believe to be the mercenaries, not the actual Danes living in England, but simply mercenaries that Athelried had used in his army, were trapped in a church, and when they wouldn't come out, the church was burned, probably with them in it. In the words of Athelried, a most just extermination, end quote. John Hayward will later point out that in recent excavations, we in fact have found that church and have found around 35, 38 bodies of young men with violent deaths that were buried in a mass grave outside of it. Most of their wounds are in the back. Ethelred's regime wasn't very strong. He was never a good king and that allowed for the Vikings who always had a nose for opportunity to start sniffing around a little. 
in 1011, a man called Thorkel would eventually lay siege to Canterbury and capture the Archbishop. Now, Athelried could not allow his Archbishop of Canterbury to be killed by pagans from the north. Remember, the church is really what the basis of political power in the Middle Ages was built upon. And if you allow that political power to die, you lose all the power with it. So in return, this Thorkel demanded a dangeld of 48,000 pounds of silver. Remember, just a few years ago, we're talking about maybe 3,000 pounds of silver is a lot. The whole Frankish kingdom would pay 600 pounds to Rollo to just leave Paris alone. So 48,000 pounds is an astronomically large amount. But England had had several years of peace and was extremely wealthy at this time. And so they could pay it. And Thorkel, once he got his thousands of pounds of gold, simply decided that, well, he can retire now. So he split up his army, some of it went home, and then with some ships that decided to stay, asked, simply asked Althorid if he could join his army as a mercenary. So a man... Simply six years before, they had slaughtered all the, all the Danish mercenaries and his whole entire kingdom now has an army and a special tax to pay for that army made of Viking warriors. As times change, they stay at the same. But Athelried didn't realize what giving all this gold would do to the Vikings. Just how so many hundreds of years earlier, the richness of Lindisfarne really galvanized the Viking people to see being a Viking, being a pirate, a raider, as a profitable endeavor to, as a profitable endeavor. This large amount of Danesgeld paid to a Viking sea king, someone who's not an actual king in Norway or Denmark, made the king of Norway and Denmark start to get a little worried. Start to see a man who was starting to rival him in power and prestige in the Norse world. So, Sven Forkbeard, now king of Denmark and Norway, decided that he too would raise an army than Thorkell could ever imagine, and he too would set off for England to get his own 48,000 pounds of gold. Sven will land in the old Danelaw provinces of eastern England, and he'll receive no resistance. No one will fight him. There will be no great king. Athelried will not call the levies and meet him in battle. In fact, Sven will have to go looking for Athelried to find where he is, as Athelried is currently hiding in London. The rest of England doesn't feel like resisting, probably because they were just sucked dry by more taxes than they could stomach. And when your king takes all your wealth from you, you start asking the eternal question, how bad could the other guy be? If the Anglo-Saxon king is wringing me dry, well, I hear the Scandinavian kings weren't that bad. And now this one, he may be a pagan, but he's coming with lots of Christians too. Sven will eventually go down to London and siege it. It will be the last and only town to actually resist his rule. But during the siege, Sven does the thing that so many middle-aged kings have a bad habit of doing at the wrong time. He dies. But get a son. His son, a man called Knut, would eventually be voted the leader of the army after him. And it's here that you can start to see the tendrils of monarchy start to weave its way in to the Viking system. So while they still used the lith structure and the way they structured their armies and their political establishment, this Knut was the direct descendant of Svian Forkbeard, who was, of course, the direct descendant of Harold Bluetooth. And they had used their dynastic claims as kings of Denmark and Norway 
and soon to be England, to actually press their claims and increase their power. They weren't just pure raiders. They weren't the old sea kings of old. They were monarchs. And well, again, it's very interesting that they voted him to be the next king. Very reminiscent of the thing or the assemblies that Germanic and Nordic people are very famous for. You can kind of get the sense, though, that this is more of a rubber stamp. In the same way that the Frankish nobility had a habit of voting for their kings slash emperors at this time. But it was always just the son of the previous ruler. Monarchy is starting to weave its tendrils into the Norse lifestyle. And all the old Viking establishments that really make up the culture of the early Vikings are starting to be torn down with this constant contact with their southern counterparts. The superpower that the Vikings had was that they were really still attached to the old ways to where, well, most of Europe was starting to urbanize, become more civilized. The Nordic people, for a long time, because of their isolation, were able to keep their tribal, more barbaric roots alive. But civilization is addicting. Well, living in a rural farm with not much food, or it's cold all the time and you have to fight just to survive. Well, that might breed hard men if you gave anyone the chance between living that lifestyle and a lifestyle with plenty of food. A lifestyle where you're rich with wine. You know, the modern comforts. Well, modern for the early Middle Ages, at least. Not very many people would willingly suffer. It's what fascinated the Athenians about the Spartans. that They would willingly put themselves through these hardships just to make themselves stronger. It's rare. It doesn't happen much in all of human history. And by now, we're in the 11th century. The Vikings have had contact with the Southern Europeans for two and a half centuries. And the modern comforts have woven their way into Nordic culture now. The Vikings of the 10 hundreds are not the same as the Vikings from the 8 and the 9 hundreds. No longer are their leaders the made men, the sea kings of old. Knut the Great is not some unknown warlord. No, he's the son of Svein Folkbeard, who's the son of Harold Bluetooth, who's the son of Gorm the Old, the first real modern king of Denmark, who is the son of Hrothknut, who is the son of Sigurd Snake in the Eye, who is the son of Ragnar Lothbrok. The generational aspirations of conquesting England was finally possible. Before Knut could do that, he would actually be defeated in his first invasion and sent packing. And the Anglo-Saxons, once they defeated Knut, invited Athelried the Unready back to England to become king again. Athelried, of course, accepts. Not very many people turned down a kingship. And he and his son and an advisor called Adric Strona set forth to strengthen the kingdom once again. Knut returned, of course, to Denmark. But a year later, he comes back to England with a bigger, larger army. No longer is it a position of power that he was thrown into at the death of his father. This army was through and through his. And Aethelred and Edmund were in a decent position to actually defeat Knut. That was if Aethelred wasn't completely incompetent. Even though Knut landed and the Aethelred could have raised a large army, by this time he was starting to get sick, and he didn't want to leave the safety, and protection, and comfort of London. Edmund, his son, knew the dangers of leaving a Viking army unmolested. So he went north and started to raise an army to defeat this Viking horde. 
And when he tried to fight the Vikings, his actual soldiers were not going to battle because they didn't want to fight a great invader without the king with them. It's one of the most interesting parts of early warfare. The leader had to be on the battlefield with the soldiers. So Edmund, to fix this problem of his father hiding in England, revolts against his father to try to save England before it's completely fallen. Luckily, in 1016, Athelry did probably the most important move of his whole entire career. He died, allowing Edmund to step into place as the rightful king of England and try to defeat Knut before things got too out of hand. And this is where he gets the name Edmund Ironsides, as his whole entire reign, or at least his whole entire early part of his reign, is just going to be fighting a delaying action against Knut. He is in England, his power base, and so the longer that he's able to whittle down at Knut's forces, the longer that the greater chance he has of actually winning. Knut's base of supply is thousands of miles away. But Knut has an advantage in that Athelried got the name unready because he had poor advisors. And one of his poor advisors is a man called Adric. And this Adric was the king of Mercia at this time, and the brother-in-law to Edmund Ironsides, and was one of the largest portions of Edmund Ironsides' army. Of course, Adric is a ladder climber. So, in the most important battle, after fighting a long delaying action, Edmund Ironsides finally has an army that's capable of defeating the Vikings, and he meets them in battle. The Battle of Ascendum. And in this battle, the two shield walls, of course, get in line. It's a very equal battle. And they, of course, start the battle. And it's the typical shield wall battle to where it's just two giant masses of men pushing against each other. And then midway through the battle, this Adric and his troops from Mercia all of a sudden withdraw. We don't really know why they did, whether they were shattered or simply, well, fear got to them, or if there's something more sinister at play. But they withdrew, breaking the shield wall for the Anglo-Saxons, causing their defeat. But Knut did not completely destroy the Anglo-Saxons. Afterwards, he went and he and Edmund formed a treaty to where they actually split England in half to where both sides get to be king of England and Edmund would have Wessex and most of Western England and Knut would have East England and the old Dane law. And this would work. That's how England was actually split. But as soon as Edmund Ironside goes home, according to the later monks, he was stabbed when he went to the privy, causing him to die with no real heir making Knut the king of all of England. North rule over all of England had finally come to bear. Ragnar's quote from now centuries before, about how the little piggies will grunt when they hear how the old boar suffered. All those little piggies grew up into boars, and now, finally, to control all of England. And Knut the Great had a real interesting problem on his hand. How do you properly administrate such a large and diverse as he and his father had now forged. He controlled Denmark, Norway, parts of Sweden, and England. And while it was more interconnected than you would think just by looking at a map, because remember it was only a few days trip by sea between his different kingdoms, the problem really came 
and that he could only be in one place at one time. As such, he had to have underlings in the different kingdoms throughout his empire. Just as in the Frankish Empire, there was one emperor, but there would be different kings of Aquitaine, kings of the Alemanni, you know, small kingdoms within the empire to make the administration a little easier. Knut would do the same thing. And it's very interesting to where he grew up in Denmark. Much of his power base came from Norway. Yet, he made his kingdom in England. And not just in any English kingdom. He would actually recreate the old English kingdoms of old. Having Northumbria and East Anglia, Mercia. And he chose for himself the kingdom of Wessex. And there's many different theories about why he chose Wessex to be his kingdom. The most obvious and the most commonly put forth is simply he chose Wessex because that's where his enemies were. Wessex for, again, centuries had been the power base of any Anglo-Saxon trying to maintain power and defeat the Viking invaders. It was the one kingdom that had never actually been conquered by a Viking warlord. And so who would you trust to properly administrate that territory? Because if they did it poorly, your whole entire empire could become dust, could crumble very quickly. Wessex was the most likely place for that spark of revolution to hit. So Knut took it as his own. And Knut really did earn the title Knut the Great. Because while he was alive, he was able to maintain his empire through his own intelligence and his own magnations. Kind of so that loyalty was the most important aspect that any ruler should demand from his subjects. One of the most famous examples of this is when he really coalesced power and was able to finally maintain his realm. He eventually called Atric to a council. And this council is one of the many reasons people believe... Well, at least later historians believed that Adric was actually responsible for Edward for Edward Ironside's death. Some believe that while Edward was using the privy, Adric snuck up below him and stabbed him. While modern historians now are more willing to accept the idea that Edward simply died of sickness, this is not a very sanitary time for historians at that time. And seeing what would happen to Adric, it was very obvious that this two-faced liar. This great snake of the English aristocracy. Well, he would have his hand in completely killing off the last bastion of Anglo-Saxon resistance against the Vikings. The family that had defended the Anglo-Saxons against these raiders for generations. Adric destroyed. Adric opened the door to this new Scandinavian king, Knut the Great, by fleeing from battle. And he slammed the door on what at that time was many considered to be possibly the last Anglo-Saxon ruler with a knife in the privy. So Knut, of course, asked Adric to come to his court. Remember, this is after he gave he gave Adric the actual kingdom of Mercia to rule when he split the English crown into four again. But when Adric eventually gets to Knut's court, he finds himself on trial for being a traitor. Even though he was a traitor that helped Knut achieve this kingdom. Even though it's very well possible that Knut never would have become king without Adric. Adric was a true ladder climber, though. His father was no one special. Part of Aethelried the Unready's court, but of no real power. And starting from really nothing when it comes to nobility, Adric was eventually able to get himself a kingdom. And while it's nice to use those people to achieve your own power, allowing them to sit and plan for too long is dangerous. So again, when Adric arrives to Knut's court, he gets his head chopped off. Because no king likes a traitor. And Knut's really the high watermark for the Vikings. 
As under him, they'll control the most power that they'll ever control. The one Viking who's eventually able to conquer England, who's able to conquer all of Scandinavia, who has a great empire under him. He really has something left to achieve, but he has a problem now. The same problem that emperors have faced for forever. To where, when you conquer your empire, and you have no real other areas you need to conquer, the hard part becomes maintaining the empire. And again, Knut was a genius at this. He's smart enough to see that Adric was a problem, just waiting to explode. A man willing to betray him if it would work out in his own favor. He got rid of that man as soon as possible. Knut was also no longer a pagan's pagan. By this time, no permanent church, like no stone church, has even been built in all of Scandinavia. Yet, Knut will make a pilgrimage down to Rome, show to his Christian subjects that he is indeed a pious man. And while he's down there, he'll rub shoulders with the Holy Roman Emperor, the new great political empire on the mainland of Europe, showing this emperor that he can be a trusted ally, that they can work together. He is not some barbarian from the north. He's civilized. And while Knut did not have to deal with the old Frankish rules of having to split up the kingdom that drove Charlemagne and Louis the Pious insane, he still had quite a few kingdoms underneath him. He had quite a few children, one by a Norman and the other by an Anglo-Saxon lover. And in Scandinavia, you can have multiple relationships and it's not really a problem. Well, it's starting to become a problem now. Now the Christendom is starting to take root and... God says that marriage between a man and a woman, not multiple, but marriage will be flexible for a long time. It's said that many of the priests in Iceland will actually maintain this multiple wife situation well until like the 13th century. So he comes from a culture where you can have multiple wives. And so he wants to give the sons of both of his wives their own kingdom with his official wife, a girl called Emma, the Norman, his oldest son, his son Harthacanut, to rule England, with his other son Sven, from this English girl, to rule Norway. Much like the Frankish kingdom was originally set up, with multiple kingdoms under one emperor, and this emperor would be based in England, interestingly. But he died too soon, before he could really maintain his rule. His reign starts in 1016, the death of Edmund Ironside. But in 1035... The death of Canute will end this North Sea Empire. The Anglo-Saxons will invite the Anglo-Saxons will invite the descendants of Alfred the Great, a man called Edward the Confessor, part of the Wessex dynasty, to become king again. So in one, two generations, this goal that the Vikings had worked at for two hundred years crumbles. And with it the really the last hope of all of a North Sea controlled by the Norse. This great trading empire will collapse because it cannot maintain itself without England. And as it seems like the Viking Age is really winding down as the time of the Sea Kings is over, we get the last hurrah that we talked about in last episode at the beginning. Because in 1066, a very complicated man, a very interesting man, a man called Harold Hardrada, steps onto the English shoreline. And he comes with a Viking army, again from Scandinavia, but he comes with experience. He is not some great king that has united all of Scandinavia under him. He tried, but he really could only unite Norway. But he is a military genius. He did mercenary work for the Byzantine Emperor, which is really another story for another day with the Varangian Guard, a Byzantine elite special force that was tasked with guarding the Emperor, but it was filled with only Vikings. 
And it's really fascinating, but as our main topic today is on the piratical nature of the Vikings, we'll have to leave that for another time. Yeah, Harold Hardrada is really a good analogy for this whole entire Viking age, because he's a very complicated figure. He's seen as almost a patron saint of the pagans, like the last great Viking pagan. Because for what we can tell, he was pagan, one of the, Vi- the rare Vikings who still was. He had a Christian wife, and from what we can tell, his Christian wife was very religious probably dragged him to church a few times. So how much of his being pagan was just insurance? How much of it was playing into his own stereotype? We could never know. We do know what he did, though. He rallied a fleet, and he invaded England, like so many of his forefathers before him. And I won't rehash the Battle of Stamford Bridge. But he went out in a blaze of glory. He went out, quote, He gripped his sword with both hands and hewed it to the left and right. He cleared the way before him, killing many men in the process. Both his arms were bloody. He went among his enemies almost as if he was cleaving the wind, showing that he feared neither fire nor iron. End quote. And just like the man on the bridge, who killed 40 Anglo-Saxons single-handedly, killed and should be killed by a spear. The age of the heroic sagas was over. And most historians, when you ask when was the end of the Viking Age, they won't say 1066 specifically. They'll give you the day of Stanford Bridge. As well, there will be Viking raids on England afterwards. Hell, even a Viking will try to conquer England again. In fact, a descendant of Knut, also called Knut, will invade England again in 1069. And he will also capture the city of York. But no longer is there an Anglo-Saxon on the throne. Now there's a new guy, a man called William the Bastard, who will also be known as William the Conqueror. Now, William the Conqueror was not as lenient with disloyal vassals. So, when he eventually got his Norman army ready and marched up north, he would not simply reconquer York. No, he would burn it to the ground. And he would burn any village, town, or hamlet that had ever fallen under this new Knut's rule, as he could not allow traitors within his kingdom. After this retribution, some may call it a genocide of the North English, The Danes never found a willing populace to rule again. Everyone knew the stakes, and it was now too high. The Scandinavians had missed their chance. But William the Conqueror is a really interesting figure, because he's a Norman. And like we said before, the original Norman were Northmen. It's really interesting how he uses such a heavy hand against people who were, to an extent, his kin. But the Normans had been thoroughly Frenchified by this point. But of course, not all the way. We have documentation that a mere 30 years before this, a skald made its way from Iceland down to Normandy and was welcomed into many Norman noble estates. Obviously, some ones who still lived in Normandy still could speak the old Norse, was still curious in the ways of their forefathers. But no longer were they Vikings in the sense they built long ships and were all heavy infantry. No, the Normans were, again, thoroughly Frenchified. They used heavy cavalry. It's one of the many reasons they were actually able to conquer England. While their infantry still did fight like Anglo-Saxons in the shield wall, they now had more tools in their toolkit. They brought tons of crossbowmen and archers, something the Vikings would never do. Because remember, being a crossbowman and an archer is cowardly. So in the Battle of Hastings, when Harold Goodwinson marches his soldiers that just smack this last great Viking army down south to deal with these Normans, he has a completely different beast to handle. For Harold Goodwinson, it would be too much. He would not be able to defeat these Normans, and he'll be known in history as the last Anglo-Saxon 
king or queen of England. So where does that leave us now that we got to 1066? We've really given a brief overview of the time of the Vikings. Remember, this podcast is supposed to be in a larger podcast series about the history of Western piracy. And the Vikings are really integral to that story because, one, they were known as pirates in their time, so we gotta talk about them. But secondly, they're really the big second wave that we see of pirates. Remember about our talk about antiquity, you have the Cilician pirates, the Cretan pirates, different Roman pirates. That was really the big first wave of all Western piracy, to where, again, there was piracy before, but when you're talking about that time, there's really not a big naval trading empire that the pirates can prey on. And you need a few things to really start these waves of piracy. And the first being, you need a homeland where you can go to with all the stuff you have stolen. And that homeland, either through your own military might or through isolation, just somehow needs to be protected from the people you're raiding. The Scandinavians were able to achieve this by being far enough away from, well, the main players in Europe that they were really safe. We talked about like three times different kings in Europe would try to create some fleet to eventually attack the Vikings, you know, take the fight to them. And every time, either they died too soon or they were just ineffective. Now, the thing that killed the early Roman age of piracy and the Greco age of piracy was the Romans eventually unified all of the Mediterranean. It became unprofitable for the Romans to allow piracy to interdict their trade routes. Well, the Scandinavians had no problem with that because in the early Middle Ages, Europe was maybe as fractious as it's ever been. Kings would try to project power, like Charlemagne and Louis the Pious were really the only strong players in Central Europe from like the 800s until you start looking at the Holy Roman Empire and like the 1000s. But the disadvantage that this had was there was no great trade routes for the Vikings to plunder. Remember, the Cretan pirates especially were able to use their location to absolutely ravage any trade going into Egypt, which was the most profitable area in the Mediterranean for much of antiquity. The Cilician pirates did the same thing. And so, while the Vikings didn't have any great trade routes to raid, they were much more a land-based pirate system where there was some naval combat and the naval combat was very rudimentary to where basically the vikings would just lash their ships together and attack the opposing fleet almost like two giant islands crashing into each other it it wasn't like the carthaginian or roman fights where they would try to ram the ship on its side and split in half they basically just made a land battle at sea and also remember that the Vikings, well, they, they did use projectile weapons. They weren't experts at them in any capacity whatsoever. So their whole entire system of fighting, of warfare, of raiding, all is really focused on the infantrymen. The hard men who won't flee in the face of danger and will hold the shield wall next to their brother. But they really didn't have to be good at these things. They didn't have to be good at naval warfare because there was no real navies they had to fight. And for most of their history, they didn't have to be good at siege warfare because there was no great sieges they needed to fight. So the Viking way of war with the longship and this almost pseudo-Blitzkrieg-esque way of conquest was really just perfect for the time period they were in, which is all that you can ask for of any warfare, really. But as time starts to move on, 
their raids and their violence and their taking over of foreign kingdoms causes these foreign kingdoms to have to evolve. I mean, we talked about this time pressure. I mean, we talked about this pressure that they would put on England. Specifically, they would force England to unify. Because if they didn't, they would be crushed. The pressure forced the Frankish Empire to eventually collapse because the emperors couldn't protect their own people. And while the Viking Age ends, of course, the story of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway doesn't. And many of now the kings of those kingdoms will now take their whole entire national armies to different countries and invade them. And no longer are they doing it for purely spoils. They're now doing it for dynastic claims. Sven Forkbeard and Knut really are the first wave of that. And the later monarchs of Scandinavia, as they become more intertwined within Europe, will become better at playing the European game. But the story of piracy within Scandinavia is really over. As all the advantages that they had have started to finally crumble. It only took almost 200 years. And a lot of the willingness of its people to go raid monasteries, to raid the undefended places in Europe, well, those places no longer existed. And now you have a whole population who are Christian and would rather build monasteries than raid them. When I think about the Viking Age in totality, it really shows something that piracy has always allowed. And that... It allows its participants to almost be the ultimate freeman in the world. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I forget which book I read in by now, but in one of the books, they were looking at the forensic analysis of the different skeletons that they found in England. And they found that one of the skeletons can be genetically traced back to being born above the Arctic Circle. And it just makes you think about what that man's life must have been like. To be born above the Arctic Circle. And then theoretically, he could have fought on the Siege of Paris. There was a Viking raids all the way into the Mediterranean. All the way to Alexandria. What kind of life did that man live? That's it's something I hope that I showed to you dear listeners. That the Vikings were a lot of things to many people. But they were never boring. Wherever they went, nothing stayed the same. Change was bound to happen one way or another. And maybe that's all that pirates really do. Well, certainly they steal and they take the wealth of others. But they're only allowed to exist in the cracks in society. Only allowed to exist when there's no real government there to stop them. In the same view as in the Wild West, is where you get some of the baddest gangsters in history. Freedom is a double-edged sword. And it's a sword the Vikings wielded well. But the real downfall to the age of the Viking piracy was the death of the Lith system. These brotherhoods that would be focused on, well, not exactly one ship. It, it, in early ages, it was one ship. But as you saw, it grew to hundreds of ships. And if Abba was to be trusted, thousands. Yet the Lith system can't work in a society that has accepted monarchism. Because if the monarch is the ultimate power, then the Liths can't actually have the freedom they need to, well, go raid people or simply disobey the people above them. Like all central government systems, and monarchy was just the early form of this, you need control over your people to actually properly rule them. You can't be making treaties with other European nations if you have large portions of your population going and raiding them every season. The Lith system was bound to die 
as Scandinavia became more intertwined within the European political system. And that's what really killed the piracy. It's it's almost ironic because, well, yes, the Europeans were certainly getting a hold on Viking raids and they, after 200 years, had figured out how to deal with them somewhat. The real death nails in this piracy was from the Scandinavians them, themselves. It's the same way that when Rollo and his descendants would take over Normandy, it was just simply one generation later that Rollo's son would actually put a stop to the old Scandinavian way of followers. That being voluntary followers. Because if you're a leader, and the reason you're the leader is your dad was, allowing a system of meritocracy to where the most competent person is who everyone follows is a threat. And if these large populations aren't forced to follow a single person, well, they can also become disunified. That's where the hydrocracy eats its own. The Vikings may not have been the kings of Europe by the end of the Viking Age, or ruled over Europe with an iron fist, made all its denizens their slaves. There would be no more great sacrifices for Odin, no more great hangings. The pagan ways that they had hung their hat on for so many years were actually dying. For 200 years, they ruled the waves. For 200 years, they were feared by all Europeans. For 200 years, the world was theirs to do whatever they want. Plunder, explore, rule, whatever. For 200 years, they had one hell of a good time. Thank you for listening to my podcast on the Vikings. We'll end it here, to where even though I really just skimmed the surface of how deep you can go with this topic, we have more pressing matters to attend to. For the next episode, that will be going back down to the Mediterranean and catching up with the pirates down there, and continuing on through the Middle Ages as we start to set course towards the golden age of piracy. We can almost see it on the horizon. Have a good day.